Hey everyone, how's it going? Uh, David here. Welcome to the uh, Living Nightmares podcast. Uh, we got Mark, usual suspect there. I'm Brandon. Brandon. Zach. Surprising you didn't say squirrels. Ends <laughs> no, everything with squirrels. Sometimes he, I start. He with starts things with squirrels too. It's a squirrel sandwich. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Do we have any uh, news we want to talk about? Uh, um, not as far as not as far as now. Uh, we do have uh, the Tony interview is up, so please watch it when you have an opportunity. I know that we have. Please stay tuned to Facebook because we're going to have some wonderful uh, snippets from previous interviews that we have done. David's working very hard on that. Um, yes. And uh, and then obviously we have a another interview with uh, with Lee Esposito. That is his last name. How do you pronounce it? Cool. I want to make sure I'm pronouncing it right. It was a fantastic interview. We had a, a lot of fun, um, especially our little um, random topics towards the end of the interview, which were a lot of fucking fun. Please stay tuned for that. And then of course, always please like, share, and subscribe, and tell everybody you got. I will pass it over to the B man to do our interview for our interviewee this time. All right. So today we are interviewing a musician that we met at the New Jersey Horror Con and Film Festival. Uh, we checked out his table and really liked the sound of his work, and we invited him on to our podcast. And yeah, without any further introduction, welcome Rob Benny, a.k.a. Q-Curbidophobia. Oh, thank you so much, sir, um, uh, for being at us, regardless of if we can pronounce your name correctly. Um, We're very uh, illiterate here. Uh, the, like, public, <laughs> tried, public schools, you know, homeschooling. Yeah. You can tell the difference. Um, uh, you know, one can read, one can't. Um, uh, <laughs> I literally have to proofread. Oh, oh it's, 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 it's disgusting. Um, uh, but thank you so much, sir, for, for being on with us. We appreciate it. You're very, it. very welcome. I'm, uh, it's an honor and a pleasure to be on your show. I'm, I'm really appreciative of you having me on. So thank you for having me. Of course, of course, absolutely. And then uh, extending my apologies that I was not there in New Jersey. Um, uh, I actually was uh, doing a new. I was training for a new job. Oh, we. Okay, uh, I'm training for a new job down in Dallas, and unfortunately, I could not attend. Um, uh, it is a job in sales, not in wrestling. Uh, no. um, oh. I, the uh, I. You know what? There. All right. Long story short, I've said this on many podcasts, but I'll say it for your benefit as well. There is a wrestler that looks just like me. Uh, we don't know this guy's name, or at least we we haven't been able to find out who he is. He is in the WWE, and he looks just like me, except much bigger built and stacked like a wrestler would be. But he does look like me, and in a lot of ways does act like me. So he is essentially my and, bigger... somehow he does not dress anywhere near as flamboyantly as you do. Uh, oh, no, sir. I, no, no, actually, no. He is far like worse. He ro he rocks a Canadian tuxedo like no one's business. I will tell you that. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> uh, the, uh, the amount of the amount of of, uh, of Levi that's going on with this dude is is just <laughs> it is pure redneck perfection. Um, redneck uh, perfection. Redneck perfection. Um, uh, so I extend my apologies, but I'm glad that we're getting to meet now. So awesome! Yeah, um, every guest that we have 
from New Jersey. He's going to have to do that I, explanation. I'm going to have to Just explain say, to everyone every about story. that. Because I enjoyed very much telling everyone, yeah, he's trying to become a wrestler instead of being a professional. <laughs> and, and actually, just for that, um, uh, we're going to post a link to, the, to that video below. Um, uh, and, and Brandon's going to have to go and find it. No, we said on the last interview with Lee, you have to find it and send it to me. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> All right, fine. I'll find it. Go find your body uh, double bar. I'll find it. So, um, so yeah, man, we'll, we'll get this kicking off. Um, Brandon has his phone ready, so he's ready to go. Um, and then I actually have my uh, question of the podcast prepared for later. Good. So, so Every, right. did, everybody did their homework this yeah. time. Yes, they yeah. did. Wait, we had homework? Yeah. Most of us did our homework. <laughs> <laughs> Public school, man. Come on. I'll give you uh, right. So kick it off, brother. So I was looking onto your website, reading about your background, and you actually have quite a few interesting influences I want to talk about before we get into your actual music career. Um, so you have influences in horror, both movies and video games. Mm -hmm. um, you have many music influences, uh, backgrounds, and a lot of instruments, your bio said. Um, but let's start with your horror influences. What got you into horror? What movies and video games? <clears throat> what transferred you over into horror music? Were there any specific scores or composers that inspired you? Okay, this is this is going to be a good long discussion because it, 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 it is a lot of different avenues I've explored from a very young age into my teens and right up now to my adulthood. When I was younger, I mean... <clears throat> I first was scared of everything. I mean, I would watch Disney movies like Sleeping Beauty, for example, or Snow White, and I would be, you know, pretty, you know, enchanted, but yet terrified by the soundtracks and by the, uh, by the witches in those movies as such. Hey, 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 don't you worry about it. That evil witch step stepmother and everything else is quite <laughs> scary. So I, actually, actually, if you go on the ride at Disneyland, it is for a kid's ride. It's kind of creepy. It's kind of like going back and watching Are You Afraid of the Dark and going like, yes. this is okay for an adult, yes. but we were allowed to watch this as children. This was acceptable <laughs> on, on regular television. Like, like oh, I yeah. if you, you know, like Zach, who's watched, you know, movies from a young age, you watched the Freddies and the Jasons of the world. But, it, but you know, this was on television and we were yeah. allowed to watch that without parental permission. So, so oh, yeah, yeah, I understand you. I get it. I mean, and plus, I mean, the show Tales from the Crypt was also on regular TV back then, you know, in the 90s. And I mean, being a five, six year old kid at that time, I mean, some of that is pretty chilling at that for that age. I mean, look, looking back, I mean, some of the, the shows and Tales from the Crypt are pretty funny. But but for that time period, when you're young and you're not exposed to a lot of horror and you have night terrors and nightmares at that age, it it it, 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 it could interestingly give you some, you know, anxiety or some, you know, very creepy dreams to have to live with every day. It's that and it got even nice yeah. horror comedy is a thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The nineties, <laughs> fucking up a, a kid's childhood yeah. one program at a time. <laughs> I say it made yeah. my childhood pretty damn fun. Yeah, it made mine. Depending on how you look at it. <laughs> so, yeah, so then I got into a, I got into the Alvin Schwartz book, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, with the the original yeah. print, with original artwork, and you know some of it, you know some of those. Uh, photos and some of those drawings and sketches were just they were really chilling and combined with the folklore and urban legends throughout you know they would give me a lot of vivid ideas you know once I got into my later you know to mid 
you know, close to my teens, like nine, 10, 11 years old, I started to get a lot of ideas for horror in my head. And I used to write my own stories and journal entries that I would never uh, take with me or take to school or show to anybody, but I would just record a bunch of journals and entries depicting, you know, a lot of these ghosts and demons and monsters that I would project in my head. And a lot of that, you know, became much more pronounced when I started getting into my teens and started exploring more classic horror movies like, uh, you know, Halloween, the original Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, um, Child's Play, you know, the, the, most of the material from the 70s and 80s that uh, started really getting me deep into horror. But it wasn't until I started studying music in college when I started getting more into the composition of the horror film score. Because the horror film score to me initially was just a bunch of creepy, dissonant noise thrown together. It wasn't until I started studying composition when I realized, no, these, these composers knew what they were doing. And they knew how to put these sounds together and layer these notes that would clash with one another and create the, the atonal dissonant sounds that would you know, give people the shivers. Particularly speaking, a movie like you know, the original Halloween, John Carpenter, or perhaps uh, Bernard Herrmann, who composed uh, Psycho, you know, the original Psycho, that, that was brilliant. And those were some of the original compositions that started to, you know, get me deeper into studying dark classical music. I mean, it made, it made the movie. I mean, I don't know if, I'm sure you watch a couple documentaries on Halloween, but there was, he went to go show uh, Halloween to a set of executives. And there was one executive in the audience who saw it without music. And she said, I, you know, I don't really, I don't really, I'm not really scared by these movies. They're not really my thing, da da da, da. you know, it's just kind of lame. And he had music to it. And then he went and he said, oh, fuck, well, I better go get some music. So he went and did the music himself. And he put it, the music to the, the film, showed it to that same producer, I think almost two weeks later. It was a very short amount of time. Um, not enough for her to forget about the original screening. And she came back to him after the film, scariest film I've ever seen. that's the the power of a score and music in general in those type of movies or any type of film really that can really have a significant impact on people's attitude and feelings towards the film oh definitely very much agreed and you know it was it wasn't until i started to listen to more of these compositions throughout these movies and started to also study the scores of uh you know, video games in my 20s, like games such as Condemned or Gears of War and even Call of Duty, I would just listen to like some of these different um, scores throughout and the different musical cues throughout. And it would just it would just make me realize like, OK, like this is important. Like a lot of this is what hits people's emotions and and drives people to, you know, conceive new imagery and uh, project new ideas, you know, just by hearing different tonality and different chord structures you know, combined with accents and rhythms that hit unexpectedly. Right. So, yeah, so it's uh, going to your music influences. So it sounds like you're really drawn into the technical aspects of the horror score. Like you mentioned, these composers knew how to layer those notes or compose those notes. I'm the most musically challenged person in the world, so my terminology is a little off. Feel free to... Correct. Nah, that's cool. Um, but yeah, so it's so you mentioned that they did know how to arrange those notes, and in listening to your most recent album and prep for this podcast, um, there was a lot of 
I guess composing or layering, we'll go into more detail about that later on in this interview. Um, but it's a, your music does create that feeling of dread on some tracks, or th there's one track that really felt like it belonged in a chase scene in a movie, and we'll cover that more later on, of course. Um, so it's what does go into um, deciding where to put those notes? Hmm. Well, I think a matter of what, what it is you come up with a theme or a motif. You come up with a, re a repeating pattern, such as, uh, for example, if you take a, a pattern in a piece that has a few notes, which just repeats itself, like it goes up, ascends, descends, and just repeat that motif or create a certain uh, piano pattern that has a four or five note um, uh, sequence that repeats on and on take that and then layer underneath something completely different that has no relation to that, but, you know, give it a different sound and clash a few notes with that sound to make, make the listener confused, conflicted, you know, where is this going? You know, this sounds like it's going in one direction, but the other is taking me in a different direction. Sometimes that cognitive clashing creates cognitive dissonance within and, you know, creates that anxious sense of dread as you described. And when you add, more throughout, especially at a different range or dynamic, which is a different level of volume, that also creates more suspense or allows more apprehension to set in, not knowing where this is going or where it's taking me, for example. So it's kind of like a magician's misdirect in a way, kind of, or you're trying to stimulate two different parts of the brain at the same time. Yeah. And it's like making someone's brain go two different directions at once. Yeah, like, do I run? Do I stay? Do I fight? Do I flight? Do I stand in frozen in silence or what? Or do I scream? You know. Yeah. So, so it is actually like how when somebody's really scared and they know they should run, but it's they can't move. So it's kind of creating that feeling through music. Yeah. The, the body can actually cannot distinguish physically between fear and excitement. Um, uh, so often those wires get, can get mixed and get manipulated the, the easiest. Um, when your body's reacting to stimuli, you know, you can't tell the difference between that. The only thing that can tell the difference is, you know, how your brain is reacting to whatever situation in that case and everything else. And that's also based on the person. Some people are going to find some things exciting and some people are going to find things horrifying. You know, take for instance, watching horror movies. Some people think, yep. think that shit's exciting. Some people think that's, that stuff is, is horrifying or somebody like me is a little bit of both, you know? So there, there there's something to be said about that. Um, I, the, yes, that's really fucking cool, man. The, um, yes. to have emotions. Speaking of that, like that feeling you were talking about, I got that with one of the um, songs for your latest album, which I'm not going to um, try and pronounce the name of. <laughs> uh, it's called As the Sun Sets, She Emerges From. The Ashes, yes, uh, yes. Yeah, so so that one in particular, it started off, like, really eerie. And then, like, all of a sudden it starts having these, like, guitar riffs, and I was, like, waiting for uh, Metallica's frontman <laughs> to just come in. Like, yeah. yeah. So I was like, where is, this, is this where it's going? Every, Interestingly every enough. Eventually. <laughs> yeah, interestingly <laughs> enough, when I was composing that, I uh, my uh, a, a friend of mine, Nicholas Papalardo, who plays guitars on this album, I contacted him because he's a jazz trained musician and he does a lot of interesting avant garde music too on itself. I mean, he's big into King Crimson and a lot of uh, like um, 
like Robert Fripp's solo work from the 80s, you know, a lot of uh, talking heads. So he does some really weird stuff on his own. So I'm thinking, I told him, I said, why don't you collaborate with me on a few of my tracks, you know, and I'll collaborate on some of your efforts as well. So he came in and, and just laid down these guitar riffs and just did some really amazing work. And and, and particularly as, as, and as the sun sets, he, he definitely came across with like a, almost like a Steve Vai sort of Satriani kind of approach to it, doing a lot of these like a, strange chord changes and note um, uh, manipulations. But like you said, it has that heavy metal 80s feel to it. You know, I thought of like movies like Lost Boys came to mind or Near Dark when I was composing it and it came together. Nice. The, that, we're all very, very, very big fans of Near Dark. Yeah. The um, uh, So, you know, and actually there's a lot of correlations between jazz musicians and metal rock and roll musicians. I mean, one of the perfect examples is uh, Garth Samuelson, the, uh, the mm-hmm. first drummer for Megadeth. Yep. was a classically trained and jazz musician um and that's where he got his professional you know perfection licks and everything else which was a perfect transition over into metal so when a lot of people hear you know things of jazz they pick up metal and when people really study metal not just for you know how fucking loud and how fucking fast it is but for its technical aspect you can find a lot of shit from jazz on the other end as well so it's Absolutely. funny that you actually mentioned that that that, that, that they, you you heard a little bit of both and you were saying a little bit of both there's a lot of correlation there um uh, with with those two different things so that's pretty fucking cool that was definitely one of my favorites for the album yeah, yeah. i really like that one too and that that's actually a good segue into the next line of question i was going to have because I did have in my notes later on that I wanted to talk about how that track in particular was like layer on top of layer on top of layer on top of layer. Um, I was going to ask if you ever collaborate on any of your tracks or is it all you? Um, which well, obviously on that track we're collaborating with the guitarist. Um, so what, what goes into creating all those different layers? Well, I create the blueprints, and a blueprint comes to mind where I, I'll think of a vision of of a certain uh, theme that I want to go for. For example, on As the Sun Sets, She Emerged from the Ashes, I wanted to go for vampires or, you know, something similar in that vein. So I went for the, the organ, the piano, you know, the, the very gothic sort of, uh, you know, backdrop to it, and <clears throat> presented that backdrop to my guitarist, and he just completely just did a great job in evoking that like that 1980s heavy metal horror aspect to it which was unexpected but it just worked so well and when he started laying down the the tracks that came the rest of the tracks that he appeared on he did something different on every track which i really found fascinating so it didn't sound like everything was just cookie cutter one after another it was just everything has its own character and its own you know sense of horror that it's supposed to evoke do you ever record at the same time or is it like he lays down his track first and then you write your portion in reaction to that or what's uh that creative process like for this process for this album i did everything first and he came in after i presented the tracks to him because my my initial my initial idea was to have different musicians appear on different tracks throughout but this time around I, i i chose him because i work in other projects with him and uh you know, I, I've known him for a long time, and and I trust his musical expertise. So he, I, I had a feeling that he was going to do something really good with 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 these songs. So I, you know, gave him four or five compositions, and he just nailed it right off the first take. So I was really impressed. Nice. Um, so you mentioned that you had vampires in mind for this track, and 
Uh, we had a little bit of conversation about the pronunciation of this word before we started recording, but I think this is a good um, a good segue into this. Um, but you have a lot of. Uh, it looks like it's spelled Samhain, but it's of Gaelic uh, origin. Um, you had another potential pronunciation that I'll let you uh, tell us all. Um, but it has a lot of, but your music does have a lot of Halloween vibes to it. Uh, the Samhain, which apologies if I mispronounced that. But no, can you tell us about how you incorporate those influences into your work? Well, well, the the definition that we're talking about originates from the Gaelic holiday, Irish and Scottish origin. It's uh, technically pronounced Samhain. 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 And it's uh, it, it's it's weird because a lot of words of that vocabulary from that time period were spelled completely differently than they were pronounced. You know, a lot of if you look at English, Old Welsh, early Gaelic words, none of them sound how they appear. Yeah. But uh, but the the holiday is a it's it's an early pagan holiday from that originated in Ireland and Scotland and Gaelic traditions and it was celebrated by a lot of pagans at that time period which uh, was supposed to be the end of the year you know the beginning of the dark half of the whole year <clears throat> like in a it, it falls between the uh, <clears throat> winter solstice and the uh, autumn equinox it's supposed to be like a halfway point between you know along with other holidays like Im Imbolc, uh Beltane and uh, Lunasa, which that's another word that has a completely different spelling. A lot of those pagan traditions and holidays were celebrated, you know, in a very spiritual context. Samhain, or Samhain as it's pronounced, it's it's supposed to be much more demonic. You know, talking about spirits of the underworld, about you know a day of the dead. You know, a lot of the earlier traditions were much more macabre, not as a uh, not as uh, like hokey as they are nowadays in the more contemporary framework of Halloween. You know, a lot of what we think of as Devil's Night or Mischief Night, a lot of those similar traditions were carried out on Samhain. You know, a lot of uh, mischief, a lot of trickery, magic rituals that could be interpreted as black magic. So, um, I mean, there's a lot of history and a lot of things you can uh, research and, and dive into if you're interested in, in the darker aspects of the black arts. But uh, a lot of uh, a lot of that intrigued me to incorporate into my work because I've always liked studying the different um, demons and devils of the different underworlds of different cultures and different religions and how that intertwines into a lot of horror as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. absolutely. The uh, the day the day that the the world of the living and the world of the dead were at its thinnest in Samhain, and then you know which which basically at the end of the day it just meant like they have you either produced enough crops to survive the rest of the winter or you were fucked. That I mean that's that that, that was the, that's why most people just died. It wasn't you know there was there was a spiritual element to it, but most of the time it was you have enough crops or you don't make it until summer and your entire village is gone. Um, uh, yeah. But the whole thing of that is that the, the spirits would come back from the underworld and hang out, and they could they could stay before the portal closed, but you could also end up in their world before the portal closed, and then be stuck there for an entire year. Um, but most of the time, they would just walk <clears> into the forest and then disappear, um, and that's how they ex they explained they explained it. But it's it's crazy. It sounds a crazy holiday. It's crazy how it transitioned uh, from there, you know, from Samhain all the way to what we have as present day Halloween, 
Um, uh, and I hear it in your music too. Um, uh, the uh, I definitely got a chance to check out a few tracks. Um, I enjoyed the on your website the first one that was on there. I really really liked. Um, everybody was saying their favorites um, was um, this mansion on Oak Road. Um, yeah. Uh, as all as all I said upon you. Um, oh yeah, that, 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 that particular one. Um, I re- oh, that's the uh, album. Oh, is that the album? Yeah. Oh, yeah. then it was yeah. the first that I played. Oh yeah, the ominous mansion on Oak Road. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, then it was but the first. Yeah, no, because apologize. But I, I see where you're going because because the title the title pops up in front of you, so you think it's the album. I mean, I I've seen people had that that same thing before. So yeah, exactly. No, yeah, no well, big deal. You know, but, public schools. What are you gonna do? Um, <laughs> the uh, the um, uh, funny thing is. The, you know, I that, that that track I really loved the most, and actually I I saw snow uh, when I was uh, like when I was hearing it. I get I got that vibe. Um, uh, I guess because I saw uh, there was a haunted house in uh, in Universal Studios at Halloween Horror Nights, and it was a completely original idea. It was not related to any any you know property or anything like that. It was set in the Elizabethan era. And most of it was covered with snow. When you first walked wow. walked into it, there was a decrepit uh, carriage uh, uh, set in, and then snow would come down, and it was one spotlight. And I'm like, I'm like, where the fuck was this five years ago? Where was this track five years ago um, to put into that house? Because it because it would have been perfect. It would have been it would have been exactly what it was supposed to see. Nice. And, and and if I and, and just as a you know friendly piece of advice, not that anybody's asking for it. If you ever ran into a filmmaker that was doing a period piece um, in, you know, in the old English or in the Elizabethan era or even early um, uh, colonial America, I would I would recommend that. Um, I would recommend that particular track because it would work really fucking well. Yeah, that was that track was actually one of my favorites as well. Um, presumably, it was about roughly about halfway through. It almost became like a horror waltz. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. It's getting a little haunted mansion feel too, a little bit from the Disney age too, a little <laughs> I was, bit. I was going for that vibe very much when I created. I was thinking if you walked into a haunted mansion or a, or a house from the Victorian period, seeing somebody playing the piano, whether it's a ghost with a uh, with a top hat and a tuxedo playing, or even a female and like one of the old elegant corsets like playing or something, or doing a waltz. You know, I wanted to create those visions of people in that era that might have either died or have been murdered or have uh, fallen victims to some paranormal possession. I leave that very open to interpretation because any of those can make an, a house or a mansion appear ominous to the person looking, you know, who sees it and goes, oh, maybe I shouldn't go there. or Maybe I should see what's there, but I'm too afraid to step in because I don't know much about the history of this place. And that, that was the kind of the vibe I was going for, the old classical romantic style that I wanted to convey with the music without getting too dark. I wanted to make it more mournful, but also mysterious. I like it. Yeah, um, that's definitely one of my favorite tracks. It's actually my favorite track of, you know, the whole album. So it's very, like, what what I got from it is, like, really elegant. Um, it's a really calming effect. So, like, um, Mark said he, he saw snow. So it's very calming. Um, I'm a big classical fan, like Beethoven and Nice. Mozart songs, like I love this so much. Yeah, definitely, definitely, definitely hear some Mozart in there, brother. Yeah, like that, that's it's, that's it's there. Yeah, it's yeah, definitely think, there. In my own opinion, I think Mozart's one of the better 
composers of classical music because he he made compositions people could understand and listen to. A lot of composers and before and after were very pompous and arrogant and just wanted to try to cram as many notes in as possible and and just show their technical prowess and their their understanding of music to such a large extent. But the average listener can't relate to that. They just want to hear something that's going to make them move and something that's going to tug their emotions. And Mozart did that very well. He he created music people can enjoy and absorb and, and move to or, you know, be inspired by. But, that's funny. I feel like that clash still exists today, even in the oh. filmmaking world. Um, have you ever seen the movie Amadeus? Yeah. Just, Amadeus, yes. Brilliant yeah. movie. Brilliant movie. Not the most historically accurate movie, no, but... Oh, no, but still very well done. Yeah. Oh yeah. The uh, if he wanted, if Mozart wanted to relate to people and everything else, Beethoven wanted to remind you it's okay to be pissed off. <laughs> yeah, Beethoven was an angry man. He, he I mean, he went deaf and and that later in life, and he had a lot of hardships. But yeah, Mozart was much more happy-go-lucky. He wanted to bring people together, and even if he was obnoxious as he was portrayed, he still wanted to have fun and enjoy life and and celebrate life. Beethoven just wanted to remind people of the, the hardships and the miseries of life and the sadness that he felt he wanted others to you know, absorb themselves and, and, and carry with them. Where I think by nowadays in today's society, you should just absorb it all, you know, absorb Mozart, absorb Beethoven, absorb everything in between and, you know, get, draw something different from everybody. Yeah. yeah. Absorb Mo anything from somebody that actually has something to say, essentially. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Somebody that has something of substance to say. The uh, no, you, no, no, you, you're not, you're not incorrect. You, that's a very accurate statement. Um, let's talk about your other albums uh, briefly. I, or did you have something you looked like you had? Something? Yeah, that's actually what I want to talk about. So on your second album of uh, the Ghost Town on the Coast, this the tracks I really liked the most was this Night Terror Part One and Part Two, specifically Part One. Uh -huh. I really got vibes of very graphic imagery and that I, I love that type of uh, like work and feel. So I'd love to hear your process on that one. Like, what was your thought process on this track and why you wanted to make it a two-parter? Well, Night Terror Part 1 and 2 were actually recorded and demoed about seven or six years ago. Long time ago. Those are probably some of my older, older tracks. See, I, I've been composing a lot of tracks since 2009, 2010 was when I really started to record a lot. But I recorded probably 50 to 60 tracks in the last maybe 10 to 11 years. Only a handful of them I kept for the albums and a bunch of them I just discarded or reworked or are planning to rework for the future. But Night Terror 1 and 2 are some of the earlier tracks that I really felt were strong and would transcend into today. So that's why I brought them back. They were inspired to me by, you know, a lot of the different um, holidays and, you know, dark festivals that, you know, the early neo-pagans and druids would uh, create at the time. You know, thinking of human sacrifice or thinking of, you know, a lot of sorcery and black magic. A lot of that I drew from reading about those and implemented it into this whole grand scheme under a night terror because someone who doesn't or isn't familiar with that kind of folklore or that kind of process would be terrified by by the sights and visions that they would see if they were to see such sorcery in modern society. Yeah, like when I was listening to part one, I like I literally just imagine myself walking to a room and the walls are literally just covered in fresh corpses. 
bloodied and just like stapled, nailed, and just flayed all along the walls. And I'm just like, this is awesome. Zach really wants them to come out with a Manhunt Part Three. That's awesome. With them, the um, uh, Rockstar is a little busy right now. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, they're, they're trying to they're trying to they're trying to make sure that they don't end up like um, uh, uh, oh shit Bethesda. Yes, thank you. They're trying to make sure they don't end up like Bethesda. They're they're running away from from Bethesda. Right That's now. that hard. Just make sure your game works. <laughs> ooh, ooh. <laughs> Shots fired. Yes. Pew 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 pew. The uh, anyways. God, you wow. That really was a fuck up, wasn't it? The anyway. Moving on. Um, uh, I used to love Bethesda, and then and then Bethesda did that. Did the Fallout what seventy six or yep. whatever the hell it's called? Oh, I actually got the name right this time. That's great. It was a piece of shit. <laughs> the um uh, the uh, and I and you know what? Oh God, it's like having a really good girlfriend and then she cheats on you. It's terrible. Oh, the, uh, ouch, ouch. <laughs> the, ouch. It's terrible. Anyway, back to back to back to bodies stapled to the wall. Yeah, that, that's a, that's a that's a great graphic image to have. I mean, even if it's just dried bones and skeletons on on on, on shelves or on a wall, you know, surrounded by magic potions or different types of acids, you know, created by a mad scientist. That's also something that came to mind when composing part two, for example, just a yeah. mad scientist getting to work on creating different potions or, you know, chemicals to, uh, you know, create new spells or potions to, you know, enchant or entrap people in the world to, you know, become either, you know, possessed or, you know, either dead, completely, you know, obliterated by those. You know. Yeah. Both of those tracks really brought me back to just like 80s horror scores in general. Like they were really well done. Cool. You know what? You got a you got a really interesting touch with this, and um, and something I really appreciated uh, is the variety that you provide. Mm. Um, uh, you you know you you're having different emotions that are, that are flowing, and nothing sounds the same. Like that's that's the best. If I can give you any compliment about your music, that's the one thing. Nothing sounds the same, and everything's really good. Um, uh, yeah. like, you can still tell it's from the same. Correct. You. I mean, mind. yeah. We exactly. Um, uh, the uh, you, you're not exactly. It's that's why I meant by being good. You know, you're not ripping off anybody. And and, and the cool thing is is you know your music is almost it, it perfectly tailored to you know it just as a whole uh, to haunted houses and the different rooms that you would go through and what you would see your music changes with the scenes that you see in front of you um uh, you know I, I, the I, if if i had the power to be and wave a magic wand you know i would want you to compose music for haunted houses because you have such a variety and such a specificity every room can get that feeling that you were talking about from before about invoking yeah. emotional reaction but making it sound customizable to what the visual of the audience is seeing in that particular moment. That, that's exactly what I'm going for. Something different on every track to, to attract a different listener, to hit a different emotion, to tap into a different fear or create a different sense of uh, disturbing or violence or graphic imagery in the listener's mind. I didn't want to just emerge with a generic dark ambient project because I've heard many dark ambient projects since the night, like the 2000s. And most dark ambient, I feel like, is just drone. And I didn't want to go, I mean, I, I incorporated some drone influences throughout certain tracks. Um, 
and even if you listen to certain tracks on the new album, like uh, um, trying to think of that one particular, oh, the Amulets and the Mausoleum, for example, like that's uh, I think it's track eight. I think that one has a lot of uh, like like drone like ambient influences that you'd hear in a video game, like even in a game like Halo, for example, but a much creepier version. I would uh, say that I didn't want to do something that was just oh for seven minutes and just have noise go through. I wanted to actually create compositions, create you know different pieces of music that would evoke listeners to go, wow, this reminds me of a horror movie from the 60s or a short storybook from the 1800s written by Poe or by Lovecraft, for example. That's that's the the mood I wanted to set in with each individual track. And and with each individual album, I wanted to have a similar theme throughout. Nice. Yeah. Speaking of what Mark uh, was talking about, how your album was different, um, one of the songs or one of the tracks called, uh, I think, Invaded by Visitors from... uh, The Andromeda. It's like, yeah, it's like track seven. Yeah, the Andromeda. Was, uh, yeah, very instrumental there. It was like very electronical. Yeah. It reminded me of, um, if you ever watch Beavis and Butt Do America, if I ever do like a part two to that, it reminded me of like um, him taking all the Xanax from that lady and she had like all yes. the- uh, Yes, Really trippy like illusion kind of uh, scene. <laughs> That's what it reminded me of and it was friggin' awesome. Yeah, <laughs> very nightmarish, cartoon-esque. Yeah, like, like similar to the Rob Zombie White Zombie segment when he took the mushrooms in the desert. But yeah, probably something more lucid and something more tranquil and like, uh, wow, eerie. I totally see that. And that, that's a really good call. That's awesome. Yeah, that one actually gave me like a 2001 Space Odyssey Forbidden Planet vibes. Yeah. Uh, nice. like, it, it's like a good sci-fi horror mm. theme. Yeah. Yes. So yes. Uh, you had mentioned so... Uh, the two tracks that Zach brought up from one of your earlier albums, albums. So it sounds like these albums are like the culmination of 10 years of you really getting into your process. Um, Because you mentioned that there are a few that you threw out. There are a few that you want to recompose for future albums. So it's not like you're just like, I'm making music now. Here's an album. It's, it sounds like you really took your time to get to know yourself, your process before you felt ready to start yes. doing albums. I mean, and I think that's really cool. Yeah. And I mean, there were, there were times I would put out these songs under different titles in the past and put them up on MySpace or put them up on Bandcamp and I would release them in chunks and I would release them under different names, but it wasn't until last year when I decided to really trim the fat of the material and actually take the time to register the songs through ASCAP and, you know, try to get them published and remaster them and rework them and, put them out onto, you know, with a more legit physical copy and to have a legit website. You know, I feel like for a long time, I've been getting it just right and I've been getting closer to it. But now I felt like within the last year with cucurbitophobia, I feel like right now it's just with a good narrow scope and it's just all come together. So, you know, I'm keeping it as it is now and moving in a more streamlined direction without being too one dimensional to sound like it's just a stale repeat of one another, but still not broadening so much that it loses the horror elements and the true, you know, mysterious element that I'm setting out for. Nice. Nice. Very nice. So, so I, I, I got a, a, two quick questions. You know, obviously we went into a little bit of detail about it earlier on, but I, I'm very curious, you know, I, I, the, 
where did you, you know, start, you know, I, I know you were watching a lot of these movies growing up, a lot of the Halloweens, you know, and really studying um, the scores and composing and everything else. When did you decide, you know, that this is something that you wanted to do, you know, for the rest of your life? This is your passion. And for the educational standpoint of all of our viewers, you know, how did that start for you? I mean, you know, did you just pick up, a, you know, a piano one day and start fucking around or, you know, you know, how did that work out for you? And then how did you get your music out to the world? It's very, very interesting. It's a, it's a very complicated yet simple process at the same time. It was, it was many years in the making. So when I, when I went to college to study music, I, I took many music composition classes where um, we centered around form and analysis, music theory, and uh, music history from different periods. So the degree I got was uh, pretty much, I mean, if you want to break it down to loose terms, it's pretty much a degree in musicology, music studies, uh, music history. So, I mean, I, I took a minor in music management and learned the business side of music, such as copyrights, entertainment law, trademarks, you know, all the legal BS that nobody wants to talk about and nobody wants to dig deep into, but it's, it's necessary when it comes to things like licensing or, you know, protecting your material or getting your material into things like films and TV, you know, all these things that you kind of need to know if you want to take your music to the next level, if it ever gets to that point. So I took it just to learn it. But throughout that time in the composition classes, I learned of composers like Schoenberg, you know, and Stravinsky and uh, Charles Ives and uh, Wagner, you know, a lot of these composers that were doing things in a very atonal, you know, very dissonant manner, creating compositions that were very harsh on the eardrums to those who were only used to Bach or Beethoven or Mozart. And, you know, I was one of the few students in that class that loved the Schoenberg compositions like Piero Lunier or Stravinsky's The Rite of Spring, a lot of the very uh, traditional classical music fans would just say, oh, this is terrible. Oh, I don't like this. This is this is too. This is noise. You know, anything from the 17th century is better. It's more refined. This is just trash. But I loved it. I embraced it. I liked the primitive elements, the elements that sounded scary and creepy. You know, and I started reading a lot of different um, history about these composers and how their works were protested and almost uh, blackballed for many years because of. Uh, you know, in the times in the 1800s and 1900s, a lot of this music was, in a sense, treated as like scary music or a devil's music. You know, this is not music we should be listening to. You know, this is, you know, this is harsh on us. We should be listening to music with melody and with uh, grace and with, uh, you know, refined passion, not none of this noisy trash. But then when you get into the when you get into the horror movies starting from Nosferatu or from you know the Frankenstein movies or Dracula you start to see a lot of those influences show up within these film scores and when i got into my later college years and in, when i graduated college i started digging back into the black and white horror movies of the past creature of the black lagoon and and the like a lot of those uh even digging into you know the original psycho the Vincent Price movies like House on Haunted Hill I started to listen to the scores and, you know, absorb from them and started to create my own compositions in the late 2000s and started to, you know, try to create snippets, you know, two minute snippets, three minute snippets and to see how they would come together. But it wasn't until about 2010 when I said, 
I'm going to try to do this legit and create a bunch of these and hopefully maybe I'll get into a movie or get into a YouTube video one day and see what comes from there. And one thing led to another and I started making, you know, an abundance of tracks designed for albums. And finally last year I decided I'm just going to make this into one big conglomeration of material from the past and new material I'm working on and release it as Cucurbitophobia and, and, and see where it leads to, you know, in terms of opportunity, in terms to reaching new potential listeners and fans and, you know, trying new avenues and maybe trying things that haven't been done before. Nice. Very, very okay. cool. Very cool. Very cool. Um, I think that's a good place to take a break. Yeah. Sure. And we're back. Uh, we just talked about what led you to creating your albums. Um, I kind of want to talk about where your name came from. Uh, Q Curbidophobia. How did I do? Did he do okay yeah. on that one? No, we got it. Got it. Okay. Cucurbitophobia. Yep. Awesome. I did it. So uh, Cucurbitophobia is the fear of pumpkins. You know, as uh, cliched as it is, I mean, Halloween, in my eyes, is, is all about jack-o'-lanterns. And I feel like the jack-o'-lantern is <clears throat> the number one quintessential symbol for Halloween. So when I created the name Cucurbitophobia and the project, I wanted to make it a project, you know, designed around traditional Halloween themes. You know, the jack-o'-lanterns, goblins, ghosts, witches, vampires, uh, demons, and everything that makes Halloween, in my opinion, what it should be, scary. And that's why I came up with the name, Fear of Pumpkins, to create an interject, sort of a humorous, lighthearted element to it. Because, I mean, who, in a sense, would be afraid of pumpkins, unless it was a jack-o'-lantern? Because I mean, a pumpkin by itself is just squash but once it's a <laughs> yeah. jack-o'-lantern you could you could you could make something very demonic diabolic and very scary with whatever art you decide to use and implement in how you carve the jack-o'-lantern i mean that's you know up to the individual to decide what toys with their imagination and where it hits their unconscious fears nice nice i dig it you ever any carving jack-o'-lanterns yourself I'm not a great artist by hand, but I've tried when I was younger, and every now and then I will, uh, you know, give it a chance. This year and the year before, I said, "Screw it, I'm not going to even bother. I'm just going to stick with my traditional decor and just, you know, do the masks and uh, goblins, ghosts, sort of thing." All the good, all the good stuff. I actually uh, oh. carved my first one two Halloweens ago. Really? Um, yeah. Your yeah, first? Was, yeah, my first. Damn. Um, and there were a few I did with my parents when I was a little kid, but the first one I actually <clears> did on my own was two Halloweens ago. I was staying at a friend's place. Um, I used to work on cruise ships, and this was the week before I was leaving for my next ship. So I was staying nice. at a friend's place before I headed out. And we were carving jack-o'-lanterns one night. And what I did was I carved Rick's face from Rick and Morty onto the oh, pumpkin, wow. creating that's, pumpkin that's that's um, really cool and then they put and so it was uh me my friend and her boyfriend we all did pumpkins uh they put them outside their apartment building and then the next day when i was walking back uh from running errands or whatever uh i saw this like these smashed bits of pumpkin and i'm just like what just happened here and i noticed that like all the other pumpkins from the building were okay but Pumpkin Rick was gone, oh, and I realized somebody smashed Pumpkin Rick. Wow, somebody hated Rick and Morty that much. Yeah, wow. 
the pumpkin Rick. I know, it's so that's, sad. That's, 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 that's a bummer. Violent. <laughs> The uh, unnecessarily well, 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 <laughs> sex and unnecessary violence. That's Holy what, shit! It really must be unnecessary. That's where he draws the line. The, uh, violence against pumpkins. That's uh, you know everything yeah. else. Everything else. Pumpkin cool. rights matter. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Uh, Hashtag pumpkin rights. The, uh, <laughs> uh, the, the, the the grand pumpkin from the Simpsons Halloween special. I disagree with you. <laughs> well, I don't know if you've ever seen that one, but it was a spoof yeah. of. Charlie there's the Brown. great pumpkin, Charlie Brown. Yeah. And there's oh, the great... wow. And there's a the part where he starts rampaging at the school. Nelson holds up a knife to a yellow pumpkin. And the <clears> great <throat> pumpkin just says, what do I care? That's a yellow pumpkin. So oh, Nelson, oh, oh. Nelson's reaction is, you're a racist. <laughs> 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 differences I admit <laughs> And then at the end, with the feet, the grand pumpkin, his final words are pumpkin segregation forever. <laughs> what? <laughs> oh, man. Every once in a while, man, The Simpsons just just, just really hits it. I believe it was the season 20 Halloween special, the uh, third segment, if you want to look it up. I will be watching <laughs> that later. That's it is the... great. It's, it's one of the best. Absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, it's fucking fantastic. Um, yeah, I did not expect this co- our conversation to go that route. Um, <laughs> so, so rabbit holes happen on this show quite a bit, actually. That, that's cool. That's what, make, that's what makes the interview great. That's what makes the conversation oh, yeah. fun. When it's not yeah. formulaic and it's not just like, okay, we're going to start here and go there and go there and you know where it's going to end. You know, I like it when it deviates and you know, takes a few twists and turns and, you know, and it just becomes something better. And then you look back and you're like, the hell did we get here? Oh, it's oh, it's, it's, it's impossible. It's impossible. No, who knows? What for the editor, like, what is going on? Yeah, what, I don't remember this conversation. Who, who, the, who the hell did this? <laughs> who the hell are these guys? The, um, uh, you know what? You know what's so funny though? We we have not hit our normal trademarks in a while, actually. The uh, the uh, um, don't don't yeah. test your. I'm not going to test my don't, luck. Don't test there's it. some there's some te- there's some woke some regular trademarks that we that we cover, and we have not covered them in a while. So uh, maybe it'll come. Maybe it'll come up. We'll see. We'll I see. don't know. Let it let it happen naturally. Stop trying to force it, Mark. That's the thing, you know. <laughs> when when you when you force a conversation to any direction, that's where it just feels like it's. Oh, like it's, oh, forced. No, it's, it's, like, it's it's like that. It's like that in a movie when you feel like a plot's going in a direction. You feel like the plot feels forced. It's almost like fuck. Like you know what's going to happen. It, it takes away from it. It's like you're just waiting to get it over. Like okay, here we go. But when you don't know what's going to happen, you don't know where it's going to take you. That's when you're just your mind is just pulling you in five different directions, going fuck. Like, where do we go next? Like when you yeah. watch the very when you watch the very first Saw movie for the first time, and you're just like, wow, like this is something different, and you're just you know, encapsulated by this horror because you don't know how they got there. And just the whole movie taking place in one room with a series of flashbacks. I mean, to me, that was brilliant. You know, the later saws, you know, just watching it for the traps and the murders. But that first one yeah. really fucked with my mind when I first saw it. Yeah, the uh, and the, the last line of that movie is pretty fucking great, too. The, I don't remember the last line. The uh, um, uh, game over. And then the yeah, fucking door shuts. Yeah. Fucking yeah. awesome. The uh, the uh, watch it again. It's good stuff. Yeah, it's good, it's good stuff. The uh, I watched and... most of those movies recently. I got to like five of them before. I was just like, it, I should probably go to sleep. It eventually <laughs> just becomes a gory soap opera. 
It, it, yeah, it really does. Yeah. Like you said, you watch it for the traps and the kills. That like after I say part three is when the series is just like, well, okay, let's see how they kill this guy this time. The uh, it was fucking weird for me seeing that movie because I saw the movie you know years later, and I'm I come from a musical theater background, a theater background, and I'm a ma- oh, nice. massive, I'm a massive Princess Bride fan. So, oh, wow. so seeing him in, in fucking Saw was weird. The uh, I was like, oh, holy shit, you're like you're you except much older and. You're kind of fat now, <laughs> and you're in a horror movie. And have you seen him in Saw Seven? No. See him in. Do I, do I have to in Saw Seven? Got, Saw guys. Seven was the latest one, right? No, so that, that was, was Final Chapter. That was the first final one. About. Is it is the it first the, final Jigsaw one. or is it called Saw Seven? Saw Three D. Called Saw Three D. Final Chapter. Because it was technically oh. released in Three D, and and like I think when it came out it was Saw Three D, but then they just made it Saw Final Chapter. But yeah, that was. So I think pretty solid advice to stay away from any horror movie with 3D in the fucking title. No, that is <laughs> except, not true. Except, no, or, well, except the, it, it, well, actually, anything pre 2000s. Well, Friday the 13th Part. Friday the 13th Part Three was originally 3D, and that movie is awesome. Yeah. That was when Jason I first said, gets the hockey mask. Yeah, I said pre the year 2000 with the exception was 3D. With the exception of Friday Night was 3D, and oh, I thought the Piranha. <laughs> <laughs> and we cannot forget the greatest 3D movie in cinematic history, mm. Jaws 3D. That was pretty. <laughs> that was pretty bad. It, was, it was great. That was pre. It, that was pre 2000s, and it was fucking terrible. It was not terrible. It was yeah, fantastic. Yeah. And then there was also a creature from the Black Lagoon. Which actually, 2000s. funny note about um, Friday Thirteenth Part Three, uh, which was directed by Steve Miner, <laughs> um, who also did Part Two and went on <laughs> to do like Placid. Um, he also did a movie called House, which the original script of that was written by Fred Decker, who did Night of the Creeps and Monster Squad. After Friday the 13th Part 3, um, IMDb De- page. Decker wrote a script for a Godzilla movie that Steve Miner was going to direct, and it was going to be in 3D. And it was going to be just like the craziest thing. Like That was when they were trying to make the first American remake of Godzilla, just show you how far back that went before we got the 98 version. <laughs> but it was going to be like this 3D camp classic, essentially. Um, the main character was essentially Snake Plissken from Escape from New York. Oh, wow. Um, and you can actually look up concept art for the Godzilla design. I think they even started making the models for it. But the studio eventually decided that Steve Miner as director, his biggest movie at that point was only Friday 13th Part 3, so they didn't want to trust a huge Godzilla 3D property with a director who didn't really have that many credits to his name yet. Hmm. Uh, yeah. And you'll never meet a bigger, you know, Fred Decker, especially Night of the Creeps fan. Than I love Night of the Creeps. That guy. The, uh, yeah, no, he'll, and this is his story, but I'm going to tell it anyway. Um, anytime somebody hasn't seen Night of the Creeps, his his next line would be, well, I know what we're doing for the next 90 minutes. I haven't watched it. <laughs> no, Stop. we're not. I'm sorry, this interview has to end. No, <laughs> it does <laughs> It's David's fault, not mine. No. He's like, he's like that fucking friend who just vegan, and it's all he can talk about oh, yeah. is being fucking Jesus vegan. <laughs> oh, you're not vegan? I know what we're doing for the next 90 minutes. We're going to talk about how fucking vegan I am. Speaking of we hat. don't care. <laughs> Speaking of hats and vegans, uh, they're, they're close friends of mine that are vegans. Um, they're my son's baby, Char. Uh, my mom made Rice Krispies, and then they're like, we're vegans. We can't eat Rice Krispies. They tried one. <laughs> Try another one. Try another one. 
I can't stop. <laughs> Apparently, they're, they're not that fucking dedicated. I was like, okay. Well, 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 well they're yeah. really good Rice Krispies. I'm not going to lie. The fucking vegan But good enough to change up. somebody's complete moral center. Clearly. Yeah. Apparently, the uh, the vegan police I from, have been uh, my entire from uh, life. Scott Pilgrim versus the world are going to show up. <laughs> they're thinking of the, uh, you know, you've had two violations. <laughs> the... Uh, <laughs> How the hell did we get on a topic about vegans? The uh, Mark's uh, fault. Hey, well, it's Mark's fault. Well, let's continue with the interview. The uh, <laughs> we're having fun. Yes, <laughs> Everyone's yeah. having fun. Uh, I don't know how we got here. The uh, in life in general, who knows? Uh, so yeah, just two of my favorite tracks from your latest album. Uh, we already talked about Ominous Mansion. We already talked about As the Sun Sets. Yeah. Um, I mentioned, I kind of alluded to this earlier in the interview, but there is the track that I thought this belongs in a chase scene in a horror movie, and that was the book Bound by Blood and Bones. Um, oh, that was, yeah. that was the one I just felt the tension just ramping up and up and up. And... Yeah, it's, you can easily drop that in a chase scene and it would feel right at home, I thought. Um, I felt that track was really uh, eerie and suspenseful, for sure. So I can get, I can see that. I had a totally different vision, though, for that song. Like, if I would do, like, a, a remake of the Goosebumps series, I would add that as an intro. Just more. Yeah. Yeah, I think the track now just because you listen to it. The, uh, oh, Goosebumps. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is this about smoke machines? I'll buy you smoke machines. Dude, 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 I swear. Okay. I'll buy you smoke machines. <laughs> All right. So when we're, we do a lot of things during the day business wise and we, we're, we're planning a lot of things. So what we do for fun is we'll, we'll watch old episodes of Goosebumps. We're watching them nice. in a lot of order, um, uh, which is just the quality of Canadian, you know, young teen kid. Uh, television just just pure perfection um uh, and there's a running joke there's so many fucking fog machines in this show there's so yeah. many yeah, like i is. feel like the director walked on set and he's like all right 15 more smoke machines otherwise i fucking walk <laughs> the oh, uh man. there's so many like it's amazing that the crew is able to get around like and do oh, anything yeah. the um uh, you know i don't even know how the dp gets the shot half the time <laughs> The, uh, you know, get the fucking bug machine out of my shop. <laughs> the, oh, it's uh, it's so, amazing. It's hilarious. I mean, I love the stay out of the basement. Uh, yeah. Welcome to Camp Nightmare. That, that um, was the one in particular is like, that. that's where the smoke machine joke came from. Oh, yeah. They, they, yeah that was the here. pinnacle. It's just like, yo, yep. somebody get the fucking fan in here. We need to blow some of this out. a smoke machine uh -huh. blowing smoke off of the roof of one of the cabins. Yo. So you can see the smoke just coming down from the roof. It like looks like somebody put like a block of fucking dry ice up there and just left it. Yeah. They just, and just and like and like they said, eh, it's really windy out tonight. We'll just put a block of dry ice there. A recommendation for you though, if you get a chance to go back and watch it, it's just funny as a composer and music writer. Go back and watch how many times they fucking cheat. And because they didn't get the licensing for additional music, they'll reconfigure the fucking title music to a different type of music. They'll just yeah. play it on the piano or play yep. it in a guitar or yeah. they'll reconfigure it into a hip hop version yes. of it. Yes. Vampire's Breath. Hmm. The, the end of it's a fucking hip hop version. And I think, I, actually, I'm pretty sure all of us, when we heard that hip hop version, like gave up and we're like, fuck, we're all. No, I'm going home. I'm going home. Like he's like, well, what about another? No, I'm not watching another fucking episode. I'm going home. 
The um, uh, but but definitely check it out though. As as you as a composer, you get a huge kick out of like that's the same fucking song. Like they yep. just reconfigured it a little bit. And they go, they play on the piano or on the, the you know the violin. Or they're playing a video game and there's goosebumps thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Although. Yeah. We can't talk a lot of shit though, because you know a lot of our episodes are living nightmares. There's other episodes of living fucking nightmares playing. True. True. <laughs> so we can't talk too much smack. So Look, it's advertising. But yeah, <laughs> but yeah that, that that's the thing that that's what I wanted to go for. But the book bound my bloated bones. I wanted to go for that chase element. That's that element where someone's coming after you, being chased by. It could be a killer. It could be by a demon. It could be by a gang of people. You know, like a, a gang of like people living in the forest as like a tribe or like if you look at movies like Cannibal Holocaust or Green Inferno of that and of that nature. Or you could be thinking of like organized crime, organized underground criminals, you know, that like, you know, do these uh, dirty, illegal mafia like uh, deeds. And when they find out someone's, you know, in their presence, you know, boom, full out assault, full out chase. Very nice. Very nice. Um <clears throat> And then the um, the other one that I really wanted to talk about was the spellbinding, uh, particularly the very beginning of the spellbinding. Um, it felt like the beginning of an ACDC song layered with an Ennio Morricone track to me. Yeah. And then going beyond that, it just became very, I just really got the Morricone vibes from it. Um, that sentence hurt my fucking head, man. <laughs> yeah. I wonder why. And it's amazing how you, you mentioned that because when I first made that track, I had the track completed, but without that guitar part. I sent that track to Nick Papalardo, and he listened to it, and he was like, I'm going to come up with something really cool with this. And then he sent me the track, and I discovered these soundscapes that he did for it that were just layered on top of one another. And it just reminded me of, like, like you said, the ACDC style. But it also had, like, this... Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Brian Eno or Robert Fripp. Yes. Like, Fripp and Eno did a collaborative album back in the 80s or 70s. And it was just very dense and very ambient. And a lot of that, what he did, carried that vibe. Like, that very... Like, like very... Uh, that very abstract period where progressive rock and, you know, there was a genre back in the 70s called kraut rock which was like very experimental and originated in Germany. And uh, when you fuse that, it just created this, you know, atmospheric bliss type music. But I wanted to take that and make it more dark and more macabre. So when it combined with the atonal piano and, uh, you know, witchcraft-like bells that I incorporated in the background with this piece, it, to me, was just like magic coming together. Nice, nice. You know, you, you talk about him a lot. You know, I was I was curious, how did you two meet and, you know, and what makes, you know, your partnership work so well together in your eyes? Well, just just the differences in our uh, musical background, like me, you know, coming from a more classical background, him coming from a more jazz framework. I think the classical and jazz backgrounds are much different in, in, in terms of music theory and approach. You know, classical is much more rigid in terms of uh, theory and discipline and uh, meter. Whereas jazz goes outside the box and deconstructs a lot of that theory and makes it its own. So, you know, I mean, for me, like learning a little bit of jazz was like a whole different art form. It was, it was a much different technique that even to this day, I still find myself challenging myself to advance further in because it's, it's a whole different art form. Whereas classical is very much about discipline and technique and, you know, 
taking a little bit from the classical and the jazz end and putting it in the avant-garde experimental setting just can create a whole new world of musical styles. And uh, what a lot of the techniques that he uh, even mentioned to me and showed me also influenced my own writing as well. So, you know, and once and once we started putting that together in terms of the music, it, it just came naturally. It didn't even feel like it was forced. So, you know, a lot nice. of the chemistry between my keyboards and his guitar playing just it just glued together really well very cool very cool did you guys meet in college no uh, actually I, I played in a band for many years with his father who was a drummer you know we've played for about maybe seven to eight years we, we played a lot of like garage rock originals and a few covers here and there and um we're actually uh we're doing a farewell show in january in new jersey we were called the cheap vibes and uh, we just we just played a like a garagey style punkish rock. And, you know, we've had some really good times, but, uh, you know, we, you know, like all good things come to an end and, uh, you know, the band is just doing one farewell show and, uh, myself, his son, Nicholas and his father, we're all going to carry on and do another project with, uh, some more funk and jazz fusion type material and, uh, carry on from there. And we're called shapes of force. Nice. Very cool, man. Very yeah. cool. So yeah. Um, were there been any other collaborations to your albums? Um, not at the moment. I mean, right now I'm pretty much narrowing my scope and sticking to cucurbitophobia for the most part, working on some new efforts for the future, you know, emerging with some new merchandise that I'll have probably for next year. Like if you see the shirt that I'm wearing now, this is yeah. my signature haunted house t-shirt, which I'm selling on my website. Um, and uh, I'm going to, uh, emerging with some more shirts within the next year as I come along, you know, in small amounts, just to see which uh, strikes the most appeal and allures more more uh, potential fans. That's okay, awesome. cool. Um, uh, what are some things that you want to try with the future of your music career? Any new oh. styles you want to go for? Like, well, def definitely, uh, some, definitely some new themes throughout. Like, I'm definitely doing something up. Uh, I'm going to try to release things every Halloween and emerge with something new every Halloween. I'm also even thinking, not for this year particularly, uh, due to time constraints, but I'm definitely considering doing some uh, horror-themed music for the holiday season as well, emerging with something that taps into you know the holidays. But for those who are you know maybe sick and tired of the same old Christmas uh, stuff that comes out every year, maybe shake things up a little bit with some more haunted Yuletide material that goes into some deeper concepts or some maybe earlier folklore like Krampus. Nice. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. Nice. Um, so we met you at the New Jersey Horror Con. Uh, you had a table there. Um, so I guess what made you decide that you're ready to actually get a table at a convention? Well, See, it started out with uh, my my friend Stephen Meitzler, who I was uh, working with with his East Coast Thrills film series. So him and I met about ten years ago, and we started working on films together. He's uh, you know a mastermind when it comes to documentaries and amusement park and theme park history. So you know he was creating his East Coast Thrills film series, and uh, the more I got you know to know him, he uh, started to introduce me to his work and. You know, then we both decided, you know, let's collaborate and work together. I uh, made music for his first film and his second film and eventually started to interject uh, some of my own music into, you know, the upcoming film, which is coming out next year called A Sure Thrill. And in, 
in some of the later two segments, there's we cover some horror themed uh, things for theme parks. Like we covered the Spookorama from Coney Island in East Coast Thrills Two. So um, for East Coast Thrills or a Shore Thrill Three, there's going to be some other horror themed uh, material intertwined where I added you know little snippets of horror music. So even if it's not the premise of the entire documentary, it still interjects a little bit of it into it. So. You know, him and I decided, let's do the um, horror convention this year. We initially planned for the Chiller Theater, but the Chiller Theater had no tables available, so we decided the next best thing would be the NJ HorrorCon. We went to the NJ HorrorCon, and the reward was far greater than we expected because we've made many connections, and we've sold a lot of uh, merch and a lot of, uh, of our DVDs and CDs together. So, you know, it opened us many new doors. And uh, nice. so that was I thought... Your- Table yeah, I thought I thought it was great. Nice. Um, so yeah, I've done a few film scores then as well. Well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you if you count documentaries as films, I mean that's pretty much the premise of doing it. But um, I haven't really done full length films yet, like full length horror films or sci fi. Although that's the avenue I'm going towards. I mean, I've been you know networking with people, talking to people, giving. Uh, you know, my music and submitting my music with my uh, ASCAP information to let people know that, you know, my music <laughs> is licensed and that it is uh, protected and that it's copyrighted and I'm not just doing this just for, you know, shits and giggles. You know, I mean, it's it's still fun at the end of the day, but, you know, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to treat it like a business and get it out into the right hands. And uh, hopefully if it does strike with, you know, a filmmaker who's potentially interested, I'm happy to either work with new original material or to license the material I already have to, you know, plug into the film, for lack of a better word. Cool. Um, So we've talked about uh, your albums, we've talked about a little bit of your film work. Is there, are there any other mediums or outlets that you see yourself taking your music (laughs) to? If there is anything, like, like I said, I'm very musically challenged, so I'm not really sure where else there is, but is there anything different that you want to try in getting your music out there? Well, I would, I would certainly try using it in computer games, video games, podcast themes, if anyone is ever interested in you know accepting horror-themed material. I mean, I love all styles of music, and I'm willing to compose in many different genres, but horror is my ultimate passion because that's where I feel the most emotion and the most sincere feeling I can portray comes out. And if I were to do other styles, I mean, it's 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 nice and all, but I feel like I'm, I'm being most honest when I'm creating horror-themed music, and that's where I'm just interjecting my deepest primal sense, you know, my inner primal emotions and, you know, my my inner subconscious and unconscious desires and drives sort of pour out into these uh, very creepy and eerie musical passages. Very cool. Very cool. I love that. Um, So I have a question for you. What um, program and system do you edit on? I currently use reaper.fm because I mean, I've, I've experimented with Ableton and I've experimented with pro tools and you know, both are, you know, industry standard, but the difference is Reaper.fm, it's the most affordable of the workstations that still offers, you know, studio quality equipment. You know, a lot of the plugins that are used on Reaper are good for PC, whereas a lot of other programs like Logic, Pro Tools, and Alton are good on Mac. But what I like about the PC is it's it's much more streamlined and 
I feel like you can learn a lot and utilize a lot without having to just drop big bucks on large plugins and large brand name software. You know, I feel like Reaper is underrated in a lot of ways because a lot of studios just gravitate towards Pro Tools because, oh, it's the industry standard equipment. You know, of course, you want to get what you pay for in terms of using material, but I feel like if you're going to get good quality, if you're going to get good quality and you know how to use and mix and master material on your own, it's better to do it with something where you're not going into huge debt for, especially when you have a limited budget and you don't have, you know, tens and thousands of dollars to drop on state-of-the-art studio equipment. Yeah. What was the one audio software that I told you about a few months? Fruity months? Loops. Fruity Loops? Yeah, I think it's like Fruity Loops. Is one of the, Fruity uh, Loops is a big one with, with PC. I know that. Yeah, Studio, yeah, Fruity Loops. Studio. I don't know. There was one that I downloaded a trial version for. I cannot for the life of me remember what the name of it is right now. Um, Different one? Yeah, it was a different one. I don't know if I was going to ask you about it, but I can't remember it. Awesome. Um... What would you recommend for somebody who's starting out and wants to like get in into just like music mixing or music editing or just something along those sorts? Like, in my are there own any opinion, free ones out there. In my own opinion, I would say <clears throat> Reaper is good because it offers two licenses. It offers a cheaper license that's sixty dollars for a person who's doing music on a lower commercial level. Like if you're not selling and making over ten thousand dollars with your music, if you're not on a large label, they'll give you a sixty dollar license. But if you have a uh, much larger capacity for business and you're selling a lot more material, they'll charge you $225 to use the service. But in a lot of ways, most of the time, if you're making more than $10,000 a year, you're probably going to be licensed with a studio that's already going to be paying for <clears throat> your material, or you're going to be hooked up with somebody who uses big, <clears throat> big name material like Pro Tools. But Reaper, you know, once you get through it all, it's, it's pretty easy to use, and you can use it on PC or Mac. And... You know, and also, if you know what type of instruments you're using, like if you're using good instruments like a good Korg or Yamaha keyboard or a good uh, Gibson or PRS guitar, and you're using, you know, and you know how to mix and how to edit uh, frequencies and EQs along the way without <clears throat> going overboard with feedback, noise, and compression, you can create good quality material if you know what you're doing and you have a little patience with um, what you're putting into it. <clears throat> And even if my music doesn't sound the best of the best, I still know with the budget that I've used, I can create good quality music with the budget that I'm using. That isn't that doesn't cost tens of thousands to use in a professional state of the art studio. Right. Especially Perfect. since there's no there's no need to. Like if I know that I'm not signed to a deal or I don't have a deal or I'm not in a huge production movie, you know, that money can go towards more lucrative expenses or you know, every basic day-to-day -day needs just to be sensible. Food, sh shelter, you know, things like that. The stuff oh, you yeah. need. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Potentially. All, I don't know. All, all that good stuff. Um, any advice in general for anybody that might be wanting a star music career? Um, anything that you learned on your musical journey that you wish you knew before you begin, before you started that you want to pass on to the younger generation? I would say just do what makes you happy and, and do what ultimately makes you happy. And, and whatever style you choose to do, don't expect to be an overnight success and don't expect to make a million dollars out of it. I would say do what makes you happy first and do what you love. You know, if you, if you do something that you hate, even if you're good at it and even if you make money at it, you're only fooling yourself at the end of the day. I mean, because if you, if you do something you don't like, it's going to eventually show in your work and you're going to be resentful about it right up to the day you die. 
And I figure, you know, if you really love something, no matter how weird it is, no matter how unpopular it is or how underground it might be, do what makes you happy and uh, the rest will be a bonus. That's really good advice. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Excellent advice. Yeah. The, uh, so I guess, I guess that's my cue. Um, I, the, uh, so typically I do a question of the podcast. It's different every time. It's usually tailored towards the, the guests that we have on. We all go around the horn. Um, I used to start with the guests first, but you get a pass just in case you don't, you can't think of it right on the top of your head. Then we'll go around back to you. But, um, uh, this one is, um, what is one <laughs> film, uh, film score or score from video game, television show, movie, doesn't matter. That that is that really stuck with you, the uh, that that really had emotional gravitas towards you. Typically, it's when you're younger and it's something that you really that really stuck with you. But there's a, a score that this really stuck with you and made you mm-hmm. feel a strong emotion. You know, one way or the other. It doesn't matter what the emotion is, as long mm-hmm. as it's a strong emotion. That that's that's interesting. I would I would say that would be a coin flip between the very first Halloween. And the very first Friday the Thirteenth movie. Nice, yeah. nice. Why? Because I, I just I love the 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 use of augmented and diminished chord, uh, uh, chord clashing within the score itself. The simplicity of the less is more approach, in particular with the Halloween score. You know the variations aren't very different, but there's a lot of minor seconds and a lot of tone clashing, which you know make it very you know dramatic and suspenseful. Whereas the Friday the Thirteenth score is just a complete mix of very lush, tranquil, yet very eerie soundscapes, along with some very interesting, yet, you know, gut-wrenching bursts and very percussive rhythmic sections throughout, which unexpectedly hit you when you're watching it, especially during the the kill scenes or when the scenes when the mother finally reveals herself to be the killer at the end. You know, that's when it becomes really tense. Particularly the surprise scene on the lake when the music is very nice and then Jason appears out of the water. That very instant clash when the music suddenly gets dark and very like menacing. That right there, that stuck with me. <laughs> very nice, very nice. Love D. Uh, I got two of them. Right. Uh, one is the uh, Nightmare Before Christmas, just uh, because I love Danny Elfman. Um, my, both my kids love that movie. They love the score. My wife loves it. My wife used to sing like almost every song when we were walking our kids to school. It's just something that we, we used to do as a family. We still do sometimes where we, you know, walk the kids to school and we sing along. And then um, the second one is, uh, that stuck with me is uh, Queen of the Dam. Just because it's one of the, I think, one of the best like soundtracks really out there for a film. Not only because Jonathan Davis wrote most of those songs, but because I am a big Korn fan. I'm a big Jonathan nice. Davis fan. But, I think, in my opinion, it is one of the best albums or soundtracks out there for like a film. Oh yeah, Dan, Danny Elfman's great. He's uh his work with Oingo Boingo was genius back in the '80s, and then when he did uh you know Beetlejuice, and then he did Nightmare Before Christmas. You know, he just he just proved himself to be a master with creating that very fast, menacing classical motif. The bum, 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 oh yeah, he was genius with that. Yeah, it's uh, fun. <laughs> and on a, on a side note, I did see uh, Beetlejuice on Broadway this year with my girlfriend. Oh, yeah, nice. the How was that? Absolutely wonderful. I absolutely recommend awesome. it. Yeah, very, very funny, very funny, very creepy, very vivid, and just very well put together. 
Nice. Nice. Chuck we G. really need to decide on when we're seeing Evil Dead. Yeah, we're gonna go see Evil Dead musical. It's coming to Chicago, so very, we, uh, very cool. yeah, we, we, we gotta I've go. Seen see. it a couple years ago, and it's a very good time, and it has a splatter zone. Like I remember, I was talking to somebody once. She was talking about how she saw Hamilton on Broadway, and my tickets cost two thousand dollars. And I said, "Yeah, well, Whoa. I saw Evil Dead the musical, and that was only ninety, <laughs> and that one at least had a splatter zone." Nice. It's <laughs> pretty, pretty fucking good. <laughs> Two thousand for Hamilton. Wow, you wasted your money. Thousand for Hamilton. That's fucking retarded. Damn. Anyway, wow. um, uh, anyway, is, is Zachary? There are two movies that I consider to have literally perfect scores. Um, Terminator One, Brad Fidel. I'm constantly repeating the Terminator theme every goddamn day. And then Jaws by John Williams. Fuck. Jaws Those by John Williams. It was mine. It Those was are good. two movies with literally exactly. perfect scores that I've yes. just brought up. And I love them to absolute death. I can't decide which theme, though, I love more. The Terminator one or the Jaws one. But I noticed fantastic. a couple fun facts. I remember Terminator, that one snippet, boom, boom, boom. Pure Factory used one of those snippets in their song Piss Christ on uh, Demanufacture in 1995, and it just fits well with the song because then it's like, and then bong, bong, it sounds very industrial and it's very cool. And uh, also, the Jaws theme, the Jaws theme, if you've ever heard of Stravinsky's composition, The Rite of Spring, there's a lot of similarities in a lot of the movements of the Jaws score with Stravinsky's The Rite of Spring. Now, The Rite of Spring is based on Russian folklore and a pagan ritual where a young lady is chosen by her tribe to dance herself to death as part of the sacrifice to the spring gods. So if you ever get to see that or hear that ballet, it's it's mind-blowing. And you'll hear a lot of John Williams' influences taken from that Into the Jaws soundtrack. Gotcha. Nice. Um, I have That's a quick right. question for you real quick. Um, have you played the recent God of War game? I have not. I've been meaning to because I've heard amazing things about it. I wanted to just get your opinion on the soundtrack because I think Bear McCree's score of that game is the best video game score I've ever heard in my life. I Especially for anybody who's played all the games leading up to that point, it's it's a whole other level. Just I will, def- I will definitely check that out. I will definitely have to check that out. It's it sounds yeah. I've heard it's very yeah. promising. So yeah, I'd add that to the list. Um, I'm trying to think because well, early. One of his earlier questions of the podcast quite a few episodes ago is favorite horror theme, and I chose Phantasm for mine. But now that he's asking about scores, I want to think, of, I'm trying to think of something that has more than just a great theme to it. Because uh, to me, a great film score, it, le- it helps lead your emotions throughout the movie beyond the theme. It can be, it can, the music can react to the actions during a certain scene, characters or events will have certain specific motifs dedicated to them. Um, and also, since this is a horror podcast, I want to try to keep it within the horror genre. Um, a few non-horror scores that I really like are, of course, um, the Danny Elfman-Tim Burton collaborations, particularly <laughs> Big Fish, um, The Lord of the Rings by Howard of Shore, of course. Um, the Jurassic Park score. Oh, uh, yes, good one. Which <laughs> is arguably one of the greatest yeah. movie themes ever. But if I wanted to get back to a horror score, I'd probably go with The Shining from 1980. Yeah, yeah that's brilliant. 
theme during the opening credits, yeah. and it has those great reactionary moments within the music, particularly towards the end where Jack finally goes crazy and tries to kill everybody. Um, yeah, I just really love that score. And then, and that's one that, and I saw first saw that movie when I was in my early teens, and that's probably the horror music that stayed with me the most. Um, more recently going on that um, uh, thought process of score, of, of actually having a score, uh, the TV, and Zach and I have talked about this a little bit, but I really like the score of the TV show Preacher because mm -hmm. that one actually gives each villain and each hero it's their own motif and they're all very different but it all feels very organic and it's from the it all feels like it's for the same story but every character's motif <clears throat> is different from each other you just don't get that in a lot of movies and shows these days no i mean a lot of the horror scores and a lot of contemporary horror movies especially even movies that i enjoy like i'll mention like like sinister the babadook you know like a lot of those types of movies that have that paranormal element a lot of the scores are very simplistic and minimalistic, which in their own right work very well with the movies. I just like, in my own opinion, I, I enjoy the more elaborate compositions where they get more deep into the film, they have a more effective punch. Whereas a lot of the mo more modern films, it, it, it almost sounds like each score for each film is very much cut and paste. It's very much like the strings okay. roll like, and it's just, it's been, it's, been done, it's been done so many times that it just becomes, you know, it extends the chills, but there's no variety, and I like variety in my like my choice of film scores and movies. So I feel like the variety is somewhat lacking for better and for worse in a lot of ways because I feel like it makes the underground creators and the creators that are not in the spotlight, you know, raise the raise the bar and push the envelope more in their talents and put out some very interesting art. Nice. So I guess that's me. Um, uh, and funny enough, this is actually an incredibly hard question for me. Uh, because my favorite composers are the composers who write scores for films. Um, uh, Danny Elfman being the th uh, being number three for me, um, and then of course um, Hans Zimmer being number two, and then Johnny oh, yeah. and then Johnny Williams being number one. Yes. Um, uh, yes. With Brilliant. several other you know honorable mentions going back and forth. I mean, I could sit here and talk about Jurassic Park, Back to the Future. Um, uh, you know, um, The Dark Knight, um, what he did for The Dark Knight, um, and then also I do. I do like Inception um, for his uh, very ominous tones. Um, uh, yeah. I think I think uh, the 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 ones that really have an emotional resonance for me are the Exorcist theme uh, for obvious reasons. Yeah, uh, uh, Psycho it, it, just on a on a yeah. on an understanding level of what that did. My grandmother's my nana saw that movie when she was twelve years old, and she could not shower for a month without her father sitting on the other side of the fucking curtain guarding her and everything else. And I know a huge portion of that was that fucking score that yes. made that much of an impact. So there's, so there's a story behind that. Um, and then the, uh, uh, Chris O'Dell for, um, uh, for Halo, the Halo theme and all the things he did mm -hmm. for that, including in a more horror esque of the scores that he did for the flood. Um, uh, mm -hmm. when the flood came in, uh, in the games, it was a very, very horror-esque, um, but Zach stole mine and, and, and to, to me there, there is no, almost no substitute is, is a theme for Jaws, um, in that movie. And, and I think what resonates me the, the most is about Jaws with the exception of a few scenes that could really happen. 
And, oh, yes. and, and the opening scene is so captivating and everything else. And it's because of that theme and just those two notes, you know, and actually Elton John said it the best. He says, you, you want a hit fucking song? Hey, hey, make it so you can you only have to play two notes, which is Benny and the Jets. Yep. And then people, everyone will fucking recognize yourself. Absolutely. Johnny Williams was able to successfully do that with two fucking notes and everything else. To to these two notes are a reminder to get the fuck out of the water and fast. <laughs> so and and the greatest thing about this too is not only is there an element of adventure in this song when you hear the you know the little bit of like the um the I don't know know what instrument it is a little bit of the uh, the higher pitch violin. Um, that's it's a little bit more adventurous. It's the underlying of the song, but there was a film critic in a documentary talking about this song. He says, there's a progress, just like a shark. There's a propulsion to this song. You can't stop these notes. These notes are coming at you and they're getting faster and faster and faster and faster. And there's nothing that you can fucking do except get the fuck out of the water. And that's what's that's what's so amazing about this song. And I remember when I saw that movie for the first time, and and, and I went went wow. And I and I and I had here you know been a fan of John Williams for long before that. You know, with Raiders of the Lost Ark and and um, and Back to the Future and Jurassic Park and and fucking Home Alone. Um, yeah. the, uh, Home Alone. You're you're forgetting a big one. It's the Star Wars, but I said it without that sometimes without even you know I without you need even, to say it. Star Wars. Um, <laughs> he also did Brian De Palma's The Fury. Okay, that that's that exploding body uh, moment at the end of the movie that I talked about a couple of episodes ago. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> who doesn't want to see some? Who, who, does, who does? Who does not want to see a full body explosion, blood going everywhere, to set to John Williams music? Yeah, that does sound pretty great. Um, I, the, but the, when I saw this, you know, I heard this music for the first time, um, I, it was, it was unbelievable because nothing felt so real and so tangible than his score. And, um, and actually there's a really good, if you're ever bored on YouTube, um, uh, if you watch the trailer for the, for the movie, when they put it onto, um, Blu-ray DVD, um, there's a great cut of it in the commercial, and it really, really sells it. And you're like, when you see this trailer again, you're like, I want to go fucking watch this movie, like now. Yeah. Um, uh, so, so he he is the the quintessential master of of movie scores for me. Oh, and, wonderful! And yeah, there's there's no other there's no other score that I that I can think of that really has an emotional hit like that. I think if you really want a great example of like how that just works for that movie, and it's my favorite scene in the entire movie, is when Hooper's in the cage. Like, he's yes. adjusting his goggles, he sees the shark approaching, and the song starts low, slow, and then as the shark approaches, it gets louder and faster until the shark just passes by. And then It's super intense, and then as it goes further by, it starts slowing down again, and the music fades, and then I don't know where. Boom! Boom. It's like, yeah. it's like they snap the fucking boombox to the damn shark. Yeah. And, and the music gets louder as the shark gets closer, and then as he goes away, it gets lower. <laughs> hey, you know, it, it's it, it's ingenious, uh, you know, what those three guys can do with with music and and to enhance oh, yes. experience of of a movie. Um, and uh, but I do have to give props though to the Exorcist though. Cause that, cause that movie is already scary yeah. all by itself. But man, does that put you in a fucking mood? 
Um, oh yeah, uh, put you there. You're there. You're you're right there. Uh, you're, yeah, you're right all, there dealing with that crazy girl. All those composers you mentioned, complete geniuses in their own right. And I think I think even composers like uh, like Bernard Herrmann, who did the first Psycho, he was you know a genius. He he did a few other films which I can't remember off the top of my head, but he was you know very well known for his work. And uh, and and from the Friday Thirteenth movies. Uh, uh, Harry Manfredini, I think I think that's how you pronounce his name. Harry Manfredini. Yeah, he's done some really cool work with the first few movies, and uh, with the exception of Friday the Thirteenth 3D, which had that disco theme that came in for the first part. You know, oh, which was fantastic. It was it was funny. It was very funny, but like it just to me, I was just like, oh, when I first saw it when I was younger, I was like. I wasn't expecting this. I was expecting it. I just it just came out of nowhere, like I was just like, okay. It just took away from the scare factor a little bit. Although the rest of the scores that he did for those movies carried a very consistent theme and had a very consistent uh, like apprehension and and repulsion throughout. Especially when they got to like a final chapter, which I think is the last great Friday Thirteenth film in my opinion. I mean, they all have their own good qualities, but I feel like Final Chapter was the last amazing film in the series. Where I was just like, wow, this is the best, a classic. Like, A New Beginning was good in its own right. Jason Lives, A New Blood and Tation Takes Manhattan. I have to be in the mood for them, or I have to just say, okay, I'm going to watch a marathon and just watch those, but I feel like those are... Jason X is just... Can't do it. it. I try, I can't do it. It's such a fun movie! Every, like, almost like every horror genre has to have some kind of, like, Something they go to space. Off of they go space. To space. So they go into fucking space. Like <laughs> a, a, every action movie and every horror movie, they yes. they eventually end up in space. Yes. I really they, want. Like, where do we go from here? Oh, well, in space Freddy now. and Michael still have yet to get the. Wait, has Chucky gotten there yet? No. no. Okay. Chucky hasn't got there. Uh, he's gone to Hollywood. I mean, Leprechaun's oh, been everywhere. He's also been to military school. Yeah. Actually, one of my favorites. I will say Cult of Chucky was awfully hilarious, though. So. When they, they had a bunch of Chucky dolls invade a mental hospital and just start killing everybody and possessing everybody, that just to me was just funny. Wait, I he had, multiplies? I had yeah, so you much. Did, fun you didn't with watch that the cult Chucky. I stopped at the bride. Uh, everybody, everybody needs a yeah. Needs a horror, everybody needs a horror movie that they could just laugh their whole yeah. way through. Mine was Freddy versus Jason. Freddy versus um, Jason's hilarious. I fucking love love it because it's so damn funny. <laughs> how about uh, how about Pump Pumpkinhead? Like the original Light Pumpkinhead. That was, uh, oh yeah, it's a great movie. Is, I love that one. I uh, love the idea. The uh, then they did nothing with it in the sequels. Well, the sequels were, you know, well, let's take all the rules we established and just say fuck it and just do whatever we want. The uh, which the is nothing that interesting, but it, screw it. Because we love, we know how much you love yeah. when people break rules and 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 lore and tradition. Yeah. Or, or one of my one of my favorite scenes that was funny and scary was the one of the final scenes from the Tales from the Dark Side when. The, the husband admits to the wife that he drew all the gargoyles. And then she turns yeah. around and she's like, you promised you'd never tell. And then it turns to this big evil gargoyle and eats his heart out and breaks his neck. I'm just like, wow, that's hilarious. <laughs> the, kids, the kids turn to the gargoyles, so I'm just like. <laughs> I will say, though, I did not see that twist coming at all. Oh, when no. It, like When I first saw it, I was just like, whoa. It, it was mind-blowing. <laughs> Thank you for spoiling it for these guys, though. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that was... But the rest, the the other segments, because it's a modern, it's a horror anthology. It's it, it covers a mummy that that's brought back that has that has a curse where it comes to life and then takes a coat With hanger a and pulls brains Steve out of people. Julianne Moore, by the way. 
Because <laughs> wow. why the fuck not? Yeah. And then uh, the cat, the cat from hell, the yeah. second. That yeah. was amazing. God. Um, which did you know the Tales from the Dark Side movie? That a lot of people consider that to be the unofficial creep show three. Which should have been a lot of the same people. I uh, the cat story was a screen written by George A. Romero based on a Stephen King short, and of course Tom Savini had involvement with it, I believe. Um, but yeah, a lot of people consider that to be the real Creep Show three, and not yeah. the Creep Show three that we got. I don't know if you Oof. know about Creep Show three. I did. Talk. I saw it. It was hideously bad. Not even in like a good way. I was just. Ugh, it is like, painful. Ouch. It is one of those painful things a human can ever sit through. Like, 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 like splatter painful? No, splatter oh, was splatter, hilarious. Splatter is funny. It's funny, least. and I would actually watch it again because it was that, like, I ridiculous. I would, I would not. I think so three Dude, is just so funny. crushing. Oh, that sucks. The one, one film that makes me laugh all the time when I watch it is uh, Leprechaun in the Hood. <laughs> because he's smoking weed with iced tea. That is funny. Was fucking that in the hood hilarious. Or back to the hood? No, that's in the in hood. The back hood. to the hood, I didn't make it through because I was. What the fuck? The, the, well, like listen a... to the title. It's Leprechaun in the Hood. The fact you know it. you're in for a ridiculous time Dude, just off that went, alone. The fact that he went back to the. Like, <laughs> and, and when, back. I say, when I say back to the I mean back number two. Yeah, back to the, the hood. THA Hood. I, yeah. I, I will know. say, <laughs> well, speaking of. Speaking of the hood, I I like the first original Tales from the Hood that came out in 1995. Though that had some very creepy, interesting imagery, especially the very last Clockwork Orange-like segment where Crazy K gets taken to jail and they they put him on the spinning wheel and they just they 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 gag him and they just spin him around a million times while it shows people getting murdered and shot. That fucked with my head. And then they put him in the cemetery deprivation tank. That was just creepy as hell. And then it came back to him lying dead in the ground while the gangbangers blew his brains out. It was nice. I didn't see this movie. You should all do it together. The, um, uh, oh, my God. And, and then, and, you know, I was actually in a fucking bar on St. Patrick's Day, and they had they had Leprechaun in the Hood on. And I, <laughs> nice. I, I had loved oh, it. Was, I, was I was with Sarah and her two other friends. They were fucking chilling. I actually took my beer and sat and watched nice. I was just like, I'll be over there. This is so, baby, this is so bad. <laughs> this, this, I was just sitting there, and, like, transfixed on how how fucking bad dude he was in the fucking like in the kitchen with that one other guy and he was smoking weed and then he killed the guy in, in the fridge and then the dude's body was on the floor he hid in the <laughs> fridge people walked into the fucking kitchen and made a sandwich and made a couple <laughs> drinks and oh, didn't yeah. even see the fucking body that was right there like, hey, okay hey, so, so i've got a question for you all now um being that you're from Chicago area, what do you think of uh, Candyman? Love it. I really I, like it. I love it. I, I think I talked to these guys before about Candyman. It's one of the first movies as a kid that traumatized me and scared the fucking say, shit out of me. Mother, Surprising. Your mother just was like, Clyde Barker, this is a good show for yeah, children. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, a lot of Clyde Barker. <laughs> just like, wait a minute. Still, still, still realizing a pattern here. Still not as scary as the actual Cabrini Green was. Um, uh, Cabrini Green was actually much it. fucking scarier. Yeah, than you that don't movie. walk over there. You're just it. like, nope. <laughs> the, uh, it doesn't exist anymore. They turned that fucker down. But uh, but yeah, it was 
Yep. Yeah, that'll that give you a good idea. Dude, they paid gangbangers to just not fuck with the sets. Yeah, that's really? Well, yeah, that's yeah, those are, yeah, in the, in the scene where she's walking in the building, those are actual gangbangers who live there. Yes, yeah, they were selling <laughs> yeah, drugs. Yeah, yeah. and that's what I loved about the movie. It, it showed you the gritty nature of, you know, the urban horror of the projects of Chicago. I mean, I've never actually been to Chicago, but, I mean, from seeing what I've heard recently and from you know archives of what i've seen you know chicago has some sections that are just a very strong underbelly you know some scenes where you know you just don't want to go in broad daylight you know or night it's just i was gonna say if you don't want to go there in broad daylight you don't want to go there at night either that's yeah yeah you you just don't want to candy man candy man captured that really well with that with that with that vivid imagery and combining that with the urban legend that just made it even more unsettling and and just chilling when you watched it You know what's so funny, though? You, you, you go there now on Division and Larrabee right there. There's a fucking a beautiful super target there now. As right across the street, beautiful condos. Pilsen is like that fucking chick from Mean think. Girls who keeps trying to say fetch. Yeah. Like, stop trying to make Pilsen a thing. It's not a thing. No. It's never going to be a thing. Well, that was <laughs> a fucking brewery in a film studio and, and a couple it. good places and that's it that's it, it stop, kind of, stop it kind of, trying to integrate it yeah if you go there kind of, oh. yeah but but it, it kind of like it, it reminds me of like when i first watched it you know like like going back to clive barker he's just he just knows how to like hit you like right where you feel the fear the most you know if you read his books of blood or if you watch his movies you know it just he knows how to get you and knows where to find your fears and knows how to play on those fears with his words and his imagery and, you know, his, his, his uh, art. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. He is a fucking genius. Yeah. The, uh, I will tell you this though, you ever come to Chicago and you, you want to come and hang out and everything else, oh, yeah. we'll bring you down over there and we'll show you, Hey, this is where it used to be. It's a nice. giant fucking field. It's a field awesome. now. Yeah. Chicago's a really nice place. You just don't go there's just certain areas. Yeah, areas. it's really simple. Just like, don't go here, don't go there, don't go there. You'll be fine. It's, it's like, literally like, it's it's a, it's, a, it's a two block radius in the west side, yeah. a two block radius in the south side, and a two block radius up north. As long as you stay out of those areas, yeah, you're that, fine. But that's like New York City, too. I mean, that's like every city. But New York City, too, is the same way. Like, you know, you go to the spots in Brooklyn, which are like the touristy hot spots. Then you have the places that are really cool. We have live music and, you know, a lot of different cool parks and so forth. And then, and then you have areas that you just... You know, even so, like certain areas where the roads are shit, they're just not paved. And like you're just driving and it's like pothole after pothole, boom. And then you hit that one spot and you're like, oh, fuck, man. The, uh, the, the union guys didn't make it this far. The, uh, it's the point of no return. It's like, oh, no, fuck it. Turn around. No, nope, we don't get paid enough. The uh, Put a fucking sign and everything else. This is where we stopped. Yep. <laughs> Enter at your own risk. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I actually came up with another question. Um, as you were talking about the score for Friday the 13th Part 3, um, is there any movie that you just absolutely hated the music from it? Ooh. Okay. Oh, oh, my. Oh, boy. Uh, I'm trying to think. This is a, uh, this is a, this is a heavy question because there's a lot of movies where I didn't like the score of the, uh, of the sounds, but that is my bias because a lot of 80s horror movies, particularly Creepshow, for example, just didn't have the technology to create music that had a good sound. Like, you know, if you hear that early synthesizer, that early Moog analog sound, some of it is just very primitive and very dated. So, 
know, when you watch movies like Creep Show or you watch uh, even movies like Prom Night or, you know, you go back to the 70s and you watch movies that emerged from that era, you know, especially in the later 70s when they started using the synthesizer technology, you know, even like a, a film like Tenebrae, like Dario Argento's Tenebrae, which uh, I thought was a cool movie, but some of the soundtracks just sound horrendously dated, you know, with the very 80s sound didn't age very well or transcend into modern time. So I would say a lot of 70s and 80s scores had good ideas and great tones, but the, the sound quality to me just doesn't appeal. But it's a hard question because you have to consider the context. I mean, there's a lot of modern yeah. films, like I've said, where if you look at movies like uh, like Sinister or movies like Get Out or, you know, The Babadook or, you know, some of the later Saw movies or the Hostel movies, a lot of the scores are just cut and paste, just not really bad, but just mediocre. And you don't really get much from them. You just, they fit the movie well, but they don't really, they don't really hit you. You're just kind of like, okay, waiting for something to happen. You're just like, you're not really feeling what you're anticipating at that point. And it just becomes a little bit of a letdown. Although I will say, and this is not horror related so much, but one score I really did find interesting was the very first Dirty Harry film score. You know, and okay. it was like very it's creepy. Actually- very creepy, very jazzy throughout. And that you know, score kind of, uh, you know, really set in and really, like, you know, gave me the chills. You know, you know a lot like, of people don't don't realize about that movie and everything else. Yeah, it's, you know, everybody remembers, you know, the, you know, do you feel lucky, you know, do you punk, and everything else. And they almost always associate it with action. But there's a, it, a lot of thriller in that movie. I mean, it, it, it really talks about the underbelly of, san francisco and how shitty it was and you know you're talking you know the aftermath of uh the zodiac and you know and and how things were not were were not going well at all i mean and also a very creepy and highly underrated villain in that movie Mm -hmm. um yes so you know it it actually it does have a really interesting score you know to an a supposed action movie but there's a lot more thriller elements in that movie that i think a lot of people give it credit for so the score is really good and appropriate for that scenario yeah so so like related to that i think it's unfair it's unfair for me to say from a musical standpoint that a music score sucks like that it's bad Mm -hmm. sometimes i might not be a fan of the quality of the sound or the style or the delivery of it but i mean who am i to say that a composer sucks because i mean every individual composer's got their own mindset and their own uh, approach to creating and in their mind what they did was really well done and well thought so i have to give credit to every single composer out there on the indie level or the major level even if it's not necessarily my cup of tea or something i would listen to you know as a go-to or even watch as a movie of choice i still give everybody credit for their own artistic uh, output i okay. i actually i have a safer question for you then um uh, what's what's a score that you heard that you're like that's a really mismatched. the uh, the score The score is is not of, of bad quality. You enjoy <laughs> the score and everything else, but you're like, what the fuck is that score doing in this movie? Oh yeah, I've had that many times. Um, and, and I'm gonna say this because believe it or not, and this might this might make you laugh, but I think if you watch like for example, like the later Texas Chainsaw Massacre movies of the '80s, like. The content is great. Like the very first movie had very minimal music to it, but when they got later on to the '80s, you know, and you started getting to like the very dancey type of soundtracks with the with the heavy metal and the new wave, and then you incorporated synthesizers on top of the killings. You're just like, what's going on? 
like movies like that and then then you get into like uh like warlock and then you get into like uh some of the night the early 90s horror movies when they tried to transition more into like the demonic movies and so forth uh i don't know it just became more like cookie cutter in the 90s though i feel like horror sort of even tailed off and went more towards action and, and thriller like devil's advocate type movies or uh ninth gate it went more mystery and supernatural and more deep into action rather than actual horror and i didn't feel like it was until the 2000s when horror made a resurgence with the saw movies and the torture porn films see he said resurgence came with saw yes i I like him one of them with a very particular movie you like one of the resurgence happened with that and everything else no the keyword let it go bro (laughs) seriously you know i'm sorry you it's popular opinion get over it the, uh, I mean, that's right. We're we're, discuss, <laughs> we're discussing the 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 '90s resurgence with the movie Scream. Um, and, I don't and, know. I mean, <laughs> Scream. The, Scream one was Scream one was great. I thought the opening scene was brilliant. Oh, absolutely. There were a lot of elements in the Scream movie that were really well done, but I feel like Scream was also a ripoff of the movie When a Stranger Calls from 74. A lot of it took a lot from that, you know, the very first scene in particular, the killers inside the house and like that's that movie When a Stranger Calls, that first half was fucking genius for the time it came out. I feel like Scream took a lot from that and the rest was kind of like you know, taken from a Beverly Hills 90210 kind of thing where everybody was like, oh, it's California and we're all in love and, oh, like the bullies and jocks and, you know, the popular kids. And then when you watch a scary movie, when that parody series came out, you're just like, wow, this is amazing. I love that. I, I do the love first scary. three movies love. are fantastic. I do love, oh, I do yeah. love scary movies. I do laugh. Like, as, oh, as yeah. stupid as it gets, it, I, I do love them. I do love them. The Strange um, yeah, scary movie, too, was my favorite of yeah, that's my favorite. Awesome. My least favorite. Three was my what? top. No, three was my favorite. Uh, was, was it no, two or God. one where they made fun of uh, Poltergeist and the, uh, the three? Was that uh, the dummy? The, the, the they tried to pull him underneath, and, and the dummy tried to get away. No, that was uh, uh, the second one. That was the second yeah. one. Yeah. Oh my that God. Was, uh, fucking Oh, that was amazing. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, I don't know. I don't look at Scream or I don't know. I know what you did last summer. I don't really look at those movies as horror movies. I look at them more as uh, like thriller combined with like that chick flick genre i don't know that's just my own opinion it did it didn't really like sit in I, I felt like i felt like you tried to take like like typical high school drama type college type drama and mix that with horror and and then well, yeah you know, really... i mean you're not you're not wrong actually it's to me it's more it, you know david arquette's probably said the best he says it feels like a john hughes movie gone to hell yeah yeah and, and, and you just you decide whether or not you like that. Um, I like the John Hughes I movies. I have for a long time. And yeah, they're great. Make a sequel now called The Breakfast Club Goes to Hell. Yeah. <laughs> How much so John Hughes is still alive? John Hughes was a genius. I mean, I mean, planes, trains, and automobiles. A lot of those movies in the '80s that he did were, were pure gold. And you know, in the comedy setting, they worked really well. I mean, but just in a horror framework, if you want something that's just scary from start to finish, that just leaves you with the chills. I mean, you go for something that's got a little more of a cutting edge existential theme. You know, something that's like more nightmarish, like a like something that sets in with a Lovecraftian or a Clive Barker theme or a Stephen King early Stephen King theme. Then, like, mm-hmm. you're getting into creepier territory. Pre-cocaine or post-cocaine? <laughs> <laughs> when, when I think of great Stephen King, I think of Salem's Lot. 
like the original yes. Salem's Lot. Yes, like that to me, the book and the, the the book and the original movie, that was just him at his best when he was at his scariest, when he was more like direct with his storytelling and it just really gave you the chills. And he was very blasphemous and very, you know, there's a lot of very anti-like religious stuff in the very first one that would unsettle a lot of people. And you're just like reading this, you're like, holy shit. It's like, this is like blasphemous as fuck. Like, it's like, this this could offend people all across. And this was back in the 70s when he wrote this. So I was just like, wow. Like, it's very cutting edge for its time. So a lot of the stuff he's done post-1980s is much more watered down and tailored much more towards a pop audience, a more, you know, middle-of-the-road audience, it seems. Something to be said about that. Okay. The um, I, I tend to flow towards more things that are satire. So I guess that's why I gravitated towards Scream. And that's why Scream uh, and, Cabin, and Cabin in the Woods are two of my favorite horror movies. Oh, um, was great. Uh, yeah, yeah. The, um, uh, that was a great time. The, 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 the joke I've always made is that, that Scream asked the question, Cabin in the Woods answered the question. <laughs> so, uh, that's a good way to look at it. The um, uh, so that yeah, that's how I've always I've always figured it. And you know, and and, and I and actually uh, I know she did last summer is actually a, a dumpster fire. Um, uh, I am not a fan of. Uh-huh. Um, I know she did last summer. I enjoyed the second scream. Um, <laughs> the third scream is <laughs> it's hey, hey. it's something. Scream three is where the real resurgence of horror. What we wanted, please. Um, well, maybe the one we deserved. Um, uh, too much. <laughs> I think Stream 3 was the best yeah, Stream. No, uh, it was the horror movie you need. And then you got the, uh, the, the, found, the found footage genre, too, which is complete hit or miss. Yes. It, oh, re- it really is. You, you, yeah. you can, you know, oh, my God. Um, I, the, although I will say, though, and I, I talked about this with Lee, our last, our last interviewee, the, the marketing team behind uh, the Blair, Blair Witch. Witch Project are are – the second biggest geniuses in the history of marketing ever. Yes, ever. yes, I absolutely agree. Only to be beaten out by the motherfuckers who invented ninety-nine cents. I still, yeah, great way to like, put it. Like, like they, they, like to convince the whole world. I mean, the the stories that were coming out of this, they we had, they had state detectives, people from state entities, not the FBI. But state entities, because the FBI was dealing with terrorism at, at, at 99, um, and you know, and nothing changes. Um, the um, but the there was state detectives calling up the producing staff, asking if they could reopen the investigation to find these fucking kids. And it wow. wasn't just one detective; it was several, like ten, ten different That's ones, amazing. ten different organizations around them. When you can reach that level of marketing of your film and impacting your film fuck your opinion about the movie you've you've won you've won you've won you've won oh, the yeah. prize uh, you know and then that's why it was one of the most successful horror movies um uh, you know around for the longest time well i mean in in its own right it's if you watch it and you suspend disbelief and you put yourself in that movie itself just just for this purpose of that i mean it is pretty creepy in its own right if you okay. like, if you if you go into it and you say, okay, I'm going to shut out the outside world and pretend that I'm part of this constraint and this paradigm, then yeah, it is it is pretty creepy, you know. If if the supernatural and the supernormal and the paranormal is something that you find that you either believe in or you find has a uh, had experiences with, I mean, it, it can be creepy. If if you're one of those who disregards the paranormal or the supernormal. And then it's really like just okay, now it's just a scary night in the woods. What the fuck am I doing here? 
you know, on that hand, though, I mean, it's it's still good for what it is in its own right. But you yeah, know, I feel exactly. like I think like I feel like a lot of found footage films, like Paranormal Activity, for example, they had creepy moments in there. I mean, the first and second one were all right, but I feel like they just beat a dead horse after a while and just got deeper and deeper. And yeah. after a while, I just lost interest and lost. Uh, it just became less exciting. I feel like they just got more ridiculous and comedic. Like, it, yeah. it's, every movie was a prequel for like the first yeah. like four movies, which I'm just like, how, it, it, stop going backwards. It, it gets Absolutely. more ridiculous. Like when they were kids, their grandmother was part of a cult and they got kidnapped, but nobody remembers it. We, 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 and, how, and they apparently had digital cameras back then. Yeah. That too. However, we, it's like, reached, we've reached Halloween for ridiculousness. Yeah. Like, All right, let's However, However, I will say that the VHS movies, VHS and VHS 2, those were pretty well done. Yeah. Like, those had yeah. some creepy moments. Those, if I were to recommend found footage films to anyone, I would certainly steer them towards the VHS movies. Or or Wreck, or, um, uh, you know, the yes. original French film. And then also, too, my favorite, actually, uh, of all time is Cloverfield. Um, that's, I'm a, that's a great one. I'm a yeah. massive fan of Cloverfield. I've always said positive things about it. And the other movie I really enjoy because I want I like to watch bad bad things happen to bad people is Unfriended. Um, mm. uh, the um, uh, they, <laughs> would you call it a? Fa- I feel like that's a new. That's a thing. new. Like it's that's not like found a, footage. It's but like it kind of is. It's like skyped footage. It's on. It's digital. Yeah. Uh, digital found footage. Yeah, it's, and and, and yeah. all those that movie are terrible people yeah um, I'll, I'll give that movie this much you just you keep watching it. i thought it was gonna hate it and turn it off immediately i'm like all right i, I just now like wait what's happening now okay I'm, wow i'm still watching holy shit i didn't turn it off <laughs> death by blender bro death by blender it's so stupid yeah my like it just just like I, i'm like i remember ending the movie and the credits were rolling and i'm like I'm like, I'm kind of glad all of you're dead well yeah because they're all terrible like the like, only one who was even like kind of a decent person but he still wasn't with the boyfriend i'm just like i kind of wanted him to live everyone else just needed to die yeah like you like you convinced the girl to commit suicide and she came back and fucking haunted all of you and killed you <laughs> sounds like mission fucking accomplished man I don't there you know. go good for her i'm there proud you of her you did there you fuck go. it the uh, may you rest in peace, rock and roll, bro. At least now, hopefully. <laughs> it's like it's like the, the... Look, and here's the thing: she didn't even just kill them; she ruined their like lives, like their memory and everything. She like exposed all the shit they did online, and just like yeah, no, yeah, no, these are terrible. These people are. Actually, I have a P- I have a PSA that. idea. Um, instead of teaching all <laughs> the kids in look. school, the kids in school anti-bullying campaigns, just show them that movie. Um, Brilliant! Uh, you did it. Hit on the head. bullying online that or, you can do. It's actually not a bad idea. <laughs> and, or and, and show them the original Carrie too. The original that, Carrie. Uh, yeah, too. Yeah. The, because uh, Carrie is the best anti-bullying revenge film I think in history, where she just wreaks havoc on everybody. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh God. I don't know if it's in frame, but we have a Carrie poster right there. I don't think it's in frame. Yeah. Well, not enough of it is in frame. Yeah. The. Uh, so can't believe John Travolta was in there. I didn't he had to do something, <laughs> I, I, I something like in between Saturday Night Fever and Grease. <laughs> was it? I was gonna say this was like his first movie. Was I think really because yeah. he, he was probably still yeah. like a back Carter then. Like uh, <laughs> the only reason his name is second on the poster is because now he had a marketing. because of now. Like yeah. he was not second bill when that movie first came out. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, Carrie is 
Carrie's great. And a lot, yeah, those early Stephen King movies are great. Carrie sounds a lot. The Shining, even though that was nothing yeah. like the book. I do like Creep Show. Stand by Creep Me. Show. Stand by Stand Me. By. Yes. Uh, what was another one? Uh, I, I got to go through the list now. <laughs> Christine. Christine. Uh-oh. Christine. Stephen King. Did you, did you get a chance to see uh, Dr. Sleep yet? Not yet. I, I've heard about it. I might actually go check it out. You know, part of me was very skeptical, but then when I saw the attraction and the trailer, I was like, you know what? I'm going to give it a shot. Just we in all, all fairness. We, we all, um, uh, the three the of Dead us, Zone. The, that was another great one. Dead the Zone three was brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, that, Doctor Sleep is definitely my favorite movie of the year. Absolutely. All right, I'm gonna have to check that out and see it for myself. Like Misery. Ah, misery. Yeah. Oh, Misery is pure genius. Yeah, that is definitely. Is, I, I could say is my favorite Stephen King. It's the Shawshank Redemption, novel. even though it's not horror. I don't know. I think Running Man is Love probably that. my favorite Stephen King movie. Yeah. The Manor is great. We've all seen The Mangler, right? Haunted Laundry Press. Oh my God! Yeah, I heard about that. The uh, <laughs> or the, uh, the the Lollygaggers. The Langoliers. The Langoliers. Whatever. Oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's a, it's the same shit. It's the same shit. Nobody's they, uh, gonna watch it. Anybody remember that? Remember that? Yeah, I didn't think so. Nope. <laughs> uh, I don't know. They they were in an airplane and people fell asleep and then people disappeared and they landed on some weird runway and the soda is flat and then they got back on the plane and. Then one guy disappeared in the end. <laughs> one that I want to rewatch because I haven't seen it since it first came out is Secret Window. Mm, I, I haven't seen that. I I, I recommend I it. It's a, it. There's Me too. back in like the in the early thousands. <laughs> there was some really good thrillers. There's also some really bad ones, but there's some really good thrillers coming out at that time, and that was one of them in that mix. Um, I, uh, I, I recommend it. It's actually a really good movie. I really liked ooh, The Mist. Ooh. Look, that's great. This was great. Uh, uh, <laughs> What's uh, 1408? One of, one of his two? Yep. I never cared for that one. I, I need to rewatch it. I didn't saw, care for it. Yeah, I need to. Like, I thought it had an excellent setup, and yeah, I thought it had some too. good moments, but at the end of it, I was kind of like, Yeah, no, no really payoff. Care. No payoff. Yeah, yeah. I, I need to rewatch it. Because I haven't seen the movie in well over 10 years. And I, I'd rewatch it. Me yeah. too. I, I enjoyed it. I didn't love it, but I enjoyed the. Um, I enjoyed the ending. Um, uh, the um, I just don't remember it. I, I remember. Yeah, know, it, I think I think it discovered that most people are pretty selfish. Then there's the yeah. debacle that was the Carrie remake. I don't. Oh yes. Which, <laughs> do you guys know? Which, do you guys know the behind the scenes story about that? One? Oh no, no, I know about no. this. Too. So the director set out to actually make it a much more faithful adaptation to the book. <laughs> Which, uh, the Brian De Palma movie was still pretty close, but there are still those little things that keep it from being, like, an extremely faithful... It's a faithful adaptation, not an extremely faithful adaptation. One question. Yes. Which remake? Um, the 2013 one. The theatrical one. Not, okay. not the TV movie. Okay. Um, I never saw the TV movie, which I've heard... Which I think the uh, Brian Fuller, who wrote it, I don't know if he directed it, but I know he had heavy involvement with the TV movie remake. Mm -hmm. He was on the Mick Garris podcast once, uh, Postmortem, and he was talking about he really loved the performances in the movie, and he feels like it's one of those movies that the edit it ended up with is not good, 
but you could get a good edit from the movie if you wanted to. That was his feelings for the movie. But the 2013 remake, which first off, I thought Chloe Moretz was a huge miscast of Carrie. Because one, she's just too young. And two, she was freaking hit girl. And you're supposed to, I'm supposed to buy that she has no self-confidence. Yeah, and I, a post you, you, a year ago, and she, she says, like, you know, like, which one of you cunts want to die first? And then, and, and then she has to play a, a shrieking violin like, the next Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, make sense. Anyway, the director sense. set out to make this a much more faithful adaptation to the book. Um, if you go on the IMDb, you're going to see, like, a lot of um extras or they might have taken yeah you're gonna see a lot of like extras that are uncredited because their scenes were cut what Um, happened after the director finished filming the studio decided no we want this to be a remake of the original movie so there's a lot of footage that ended up in the final cut and a lot of stuff that cut out and it's like when the director saw the movie she was just like i i didn't direct that Huh. Yeah, it's it's, it's it's almost like it's almost like recording it's almost like recording a song that's like eight minutes long, like with a, like a very elaborate composition, and then nah, five minutes it just has to be cut out, and then you get three minutes and it just has no structure because that five minutes you took out had something significant yeah. to do with the piece, and it happens with a lot of like progressive metal bands like uh, like Dream Theater or like Symphony X or a lot of those bands that write ten to eleven minute songs. They can never have radio edits because then you'd lose the song by the time they'd edit it down because a huge chunk of a solo or the structure within the track would serve to have a huge purpose in establishing the song. That's why like a band like like Rush in the 70s, Rush never got much radio play because half of their songs were over 10 minutes. And yet within that 10 minutes, every section had a purpose and made well, sense. Fucking Neil Neil Perk can go on forever, man. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, like like let me let me also drum and drum and eat a rotisserie chicken that I just started fucking <laughs> yep. making. He would like leave his drum set, put it in a put it in the rotisserie, come back, keep playing yep. and everything else. It would be done. He'd stop playing. He'd go and get the fucking rotisserie chicken, put it in his mouth and then keep fucking playing. And then yep. cook it up. He was yeah, and then and, and, and still and still not miss a beat. Yeah, no, no, and not and not miss a beat. You know, it, it was it's crazy. It's ama- you know, it's amazing how like people like fucking Meatloaf got any radio play. All this shit is like it is like ten minutes long too. Oh yeah, everything he did, Paradise by the Dashboard Light, Bad Out of Hell, I Do Anything for Love. The album version is like twelve minutes long, and and, oh, and yet and yet you hear the radio edit, and you're like, where's the song? And then you hear the complete version of twelve minutes, and you're like. Wow, this makes sense now because every part serves a purpose, and it's almost like watching a play or seeing a movie. Like it, you have to encapsulate the whole entire thing. Oh yeah, it's right. Can you imagine like him cutting out parts of Paradise by the Dashboard Light? Oh, you wouldn't even know what the fuck was going on in the story. No way, exactly. So the uh, so yeah, you know what? Um, uh, oh, Stephen King yeah. being a. We, we should do an episode about Stephen King movies. I don't think we've done that yet. Oh, we said we were going to. We, we, we gone a, a while for that. We, we we we've talked about Maximum Overdrive enough. So you know, oh, I, I would love I would love to see an episode on, on Stephen King movies because you know especially the progression of the earlier ones up to the more recent ones and to see how it changed. They changed from being very gory and graphic to much more dramatic and science fiction oriented to a lot more of the more dramatic ones like uh straw tank and green mile and a lot of the more like uh you know the ones that make you reflect more instead of just you know sit back in horror 
So that would be very interesting if you did an episode on that. Yeah. Tell you what, after the new year, do you want to come back and do a Stephen King episode with us? No. I'm down. I'm totally down. Cool. Awesome. That's awesome. even better. Okay. The uh, So... And just add a personal recommendation too, if you have not seen the trailer for Maximum Overdrive, um, I and there it is. <laughs> you know, there, we're in Stephen King Look, land. He, no, th- it, this is it fine. Came up naturally. Yeah, this is, this it came up King, naturally. This is, this is Stephen King land. If you have not seen this trailer, I highly recommend it um, uh, for many reasons because it's a ridiculous movie, but also Stephen <laughs> Stephen's clearly high on coke while he's doing this fucking trailer. The um, uh, you know, we we all see. <laughs> A visionary director genius he was. Um, That's amazing. Uh, the, uh, you know, we think he was, as we know he was. But yeah, the, Which, uh, <laughs> all right, I, I'm I'm going to take this back full circle now because uh, I've mentioned I thought one of your songs had inspiration from this. Uh, the music in Maximum Overdrive was by ACDC. Nice. Yeah. yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> that is yeah, and, and a lot, a lot, and the guitar work in some of the tracks, like the Spellbinding, has that similarity, a very subtle similarity. And you know, if you listen to like even like the other track, like uh, as the sun sets, you merge from the ashes, has that like '80s rock little bit of undertone to it that carries it through. And uh, then I wanted to take it to the very end of the album and talk about the track Requiem, which has that very melancholy, poignant, like a. Uh, theme to it like very sad you know that it's almost like a mournful ending of a movie where you see like like the ending scene of the person leaving the cemetery or the person saying goodbye to their loved one as their ghost disappears back into the light you know i got inspiration from that from a lot of like the endings of certain movies of the uh, 60s and 70s and even up through the current day where you know the the lover parts ways with their dead former lover or their you know, the child parts ways with their dead father who's been slain by the demon or the one who sacrificed their life to save the lives of their family who, you know, is, you know, bidding farewell to those that he's left behind. And that's the vibe I wanted to, to capture it with. I wanted to end the album on a more like farewell note. So, you know, it, it sort of has a beginning and an end and doesn't leave you hanging. Nice. Yes. And, and, and every Cucur with the Phobia release, every final track on the album has that same vibe. Epilogue on Tapestries for Terror, Tapestries of Terror, for example, is a very like very moody ambient piece inspired by John Cage, very piano driven, and just makes you sit and reflect. And then the final track on Ghost Town on the Coast, Dedication, is very uh, very symphonic and has a very like uh, like adventurous kind of John Williams feel to it, and uh, you know it almost makes you want to sit back and you know just in, be inspired by the scenery around you, almost as a you know, you're there by yourself, not knowing where you're going next, but, you know, waiting to see what lies ahead. Nice. 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 What a, what a nice sentiment. <laughs> I think that's a good... That's that, you, we, we, we ain't going to find a better note yeah, than that. We're, to we're, not gonna, we're not going to top that for an ending. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, was, uh, that was very poignant. The, uh, my, so um, uh, we'll do uh, final thoughts. Well, um... Overall, I enjoyed this album. I think you have uh, massive talent there. Uh, you, we definitely Thanks. feel the passion um, that you have for creating this, at least this type of music. Because um, when we listen to it, it doesn't sound like it's just all thrown into, you know, everything and into a blender and just mixed up. And here you go. We can we can feel the the time that it took, the love and the passion that you um, you had to create this. So, oh, thanks. Definitely my favorite song, Omnius Mansion from uh, what, Oak Road. Mm-hmm. 
I'm such a big fan of classical music. I enjoy that. Well, I listened to that track like two, three, four times. Amazing. Nice. Squirrels. Yeah, no, that was cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, David, literally, <laughs> my thoughts word for word, like literally word for word. Oh, that's my, that's my so, job. That's uh, Zach, in editing, you can just, you know, copy and paste David's audio onto yeah. my speaking. Yeah, just go move your mouth a few times and I'll just have David's voice come do, out uh, of <laughs> Oh, man. Oh, no. God. I can't wait to see what you do next. Yes. The uh, and 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 then he stole my my one. I I'm, I'm actually very much looking forward to what whatever your next adventure is. I'm very much looking forward <laughs> to having you come on and bullshit about uh, Stephen King movies. Um, uh, I really. That. Um, we're well, the thing is though we're gonna have to all all collectively refresh and and probably watch as many as we Absolutely. possibly can to, oh, to, yeah. to get ourselves prepped. You guys can come over and watch The Lawnmower Man. Oh, yeah. Another classic. I, I love that. that. The, uh, the, uh, well, I'm a big fan of Pierce Brosnan, so there's that. Um, Look, the big uh, one is man. Running Man. That is clearly the best. Sure. Um, uh, <laughs> um, uh, so thank you so much for being on. We really appreciate it. I'm very excited to see what you do next and um, uh, and to and, and do uh, that. I got you. Um, uh, <laughs> And uh, I already know what you're thinking. I'm, I got you. Um, he had to get his. <laughs> so, um, uh, if you would be so kind, though, to tell all the the fine folks where they can find you, um, uh, where your website, if you're on Instagram, Facebook, uh, and any kind of plugs that you want to do, the 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 floor is yours, sir. Absolutely. Um, yeah, if you want to find out more of my work, you can visit my website at qcurbitophobia.com where you can find my music and my merchandise, including the signature Haunted House t-shirt, which is available in all sizes. Um, if I ever am sold out of a certain size, I will have the size within immediately, and all orders are shipped within two to three weeks of delivery. Um, music is available on physical CD and digital download, which can be found on Bandcamp, on cucurbitophobia.bandcamp.com, or iTunes, Apple Music, Spotify, Google Play, Amazon Music, you can find it digitally, or you can buy a CD if you want to show your support, and uh, you'll have uh, bigger perks when you do buy physical product from me. You can also find Cucurbiophobia on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook if you want to follow me on social media to find any new updates or just me posting a couple of uh, photos or videos of any interesting things I might find. Although I do not use social media very frequently to you know project everything i do in my life i do find some interesting photos or interesting art or movies that i'm you know interested in or any ideas that i might have i tend to put them out into the world just to uh share them with anyone who's interested in viewing them so uh as far as what lies next just follow me on social media or visit my website and uh keep up with me and uh, i will be more than happy to let you know with what i decide to emerge with in the near future and when that is i will leave that open to a surprise Ooh, very awesome. nice. Surprises are good. Um, uh, and then, of course, uh, our lovely audience, if you'd be so kind to uh, like, share, and subscribe uh, at the Midwest Horror Network. Uh, you can find us on all social media platforms. And also, you can find this podcast also on Spotify, or you will find this uh, on this on Spotify, and also SoundCloud, and then Anchor. Um, I don't uh, think we're on SoundCloud. We're not on SoundCloud? Okay, we're not on SoundCloud. We're on Spotify, we're on Anchor, uh, we are not on Apple Music. 
Um, because they won't let us on for some reason, and I can't figure uh, out their policies. It's so sorry. It's, oh, I, I don't know. it's Apple. They're terrible. Yeah, so um, uh, so you can find us there, <laughs> but you can also find us right on the Midwest Horror Network uh, YouTube channel. Uh, just go ahead and uh, and listen to us. That would be super awesome. Thank you very much from behalf of all of us. Also, you're, you're welcome. You. <laughs> also, if you have a slasher account, we do have a Midwest Horror Network account on there where I have not posted anything yet because I don't know what the hell to post, but I will be posting stuff on there sooner or later. I don't know. Stuff Ooh. Ooh. Episode three coming soon. Yeah. Yeah. Or this podcast or any yeah. of the other ones. The, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, the, uh, yeah. Thank you so much. And uh, you're, we'll you're welcome. It's been an absolute honor and pleasure, and I hope you all have a great rest of your night. Enjoy the rest of your season. I wish you a happy holiday and a happy new year, and I uh, can't wait to you know jump back on with you fellas soon. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Absolutely. Soon. Good for the rest of you, have a good night. Have a good night. All right. Have a great night.